and talking to our friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle Renee. Hey, gang, go check out our pals at Mignolaverse.com. They've always got the goods on the Hellboy coverage. They have some lovely articles focusing on Hellboy this week after Hellboy Day, and they have reviews on the new books coming out. Thanks, Taylor Dodderman, for their review on Facebook, and thanks for the review on iTunes West. He writes, I love Hellboy and I love this podcast. They take such an in-depth look into each story, and even after reading the ever-developing Mignolaverse myself countless times, I have learned so much more from the podcast and connected even more dots. It is a companion must for the Hellboy universe. The network of people the podcast has tapped into is as rich as it can get when talking about a comic book. Thank you, Hellboy Book Club, for doing this, and you will hear from me soon. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. So looking forward to hearing from you more, Wes. Thank you so much. New Thank you for those kind the... words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for those kind words. Like yeah, and he mentions, you know, all how the podcast has tapped us into all these other people and I think that's really awesome. People have been so nice and generous lately. I was talking to Danielle and I was telling her on one of the Mignola pages and I was looking for a textless version of a cover of the Gods of Monsters trade paperback cover that has Abe and it has Texas on it. Didn't you mention that in the podcast? I did. So Matthew Boyne was able to get it on Reddit and get somebody to Photoshop all the texts out. So that way I could have that as my wallpaper. So yeah, that was very nice. Super I, nice. That, that was, that was awesome. very sweet to do that. And That was on uh, Twitter, right? Yes. I, I yeah. I saw that one. Okay, yeah. And the, the, the few times I get on Twitter. Right. And then also Nathaniel Green is sending us some stuff that he got from Hellboy Day. He's sending us some little promos and stuff like that. Awesome. So yeah, everybody's been really great. Well, uh, it's good to have have a new member of the book club welcome to wes welcome, <laughs> welcome wes yes thank welcome. you and also don't forget to go buy your hellboy tickets we actually got our tickets i'm really april excited 11th. april 11th we're gonna see that and now we're gonna go on to some listener feedback Matt Strackbine said, hey, you damn guys. Some people aren't going to watch the new Hellboy movie because a particular actor isn't involved. Okay, that's odd to me, but okay. Those folks will be missing out. So you know, worthy revolutions only, I always say. Back to the comics. The late John Severin has always been one of my favorite comic artists, and I was so pleased to see him on one of my favorite contemporary comic titles. He lived in Denver, just south of where I live but I never got a chance to meet him. His style was beyond perfect for Witchfinder Lost and Gone Forever, for which he was hand-chosen to draw. His work for Cracked was certainly notable, but it was always his more serious war comics that hooked me most. Just a well-rounded perspective of all things Americana. Also goes to show how awesome Mignola and company are for providing us readers with such exceptional creators we may not have otherwise known about. Side note, John Severin was one of those classic artists who drew while smoking a pipe. Something I do too, although not necessarily the same blend. Noish, noish. I need to mention, though, that the way I found John Severin was through his sister, Marie, who I discovered first. She was one of those potentially lesser-known comic artists whose work I've always admired. She originally broke into comics as a colorist and went on to co-create Spider-Woman. I have several of her Submariner comics, which I still read over and over. I can only imagine what it was like growing up in a house that produced such amazing comic book talents. 
Anyway, great episode. Always a pleasure hanging out with you three. P.S. I am listening to this episode while recovering from the flu. Please excuse any incoherence. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for that, man. I hope you, you feel better. That yeah. sucks. Yes, Having the flu sucks smoke, balls. Smoke plenty of that, that pipe, that, that blend. <laughs> and, and feel get better. plenty of rest. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so I, I didn't. Yes, the spider one? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I didn't Jessica know that. Drew? That's I really interesting. That. That's yeah. really awesome. Thanks for that feedback, Matt Strackbine. And also check out his Instagram, Friends of Strackbine. He had some good Hellboy Day yeah. artwork too. Yeah. Great stuff. Super good. Some feedback on BPRD Hell on Earth Monsters. Nathaniel Green said, I got to meet Tyler Crook this Hellboy Day and mentioned how much people love that Liz kicked the shit out of that guy without dropping any groceries. And he thought that that was great. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I would really like to meet Tyler Crook. Hopefully he'll make it down to a con here soon. Some feedback on the Storm and the Fury. We actually heard again from Duncan Figredo hey. on Twitter. Awesome. He said, just started your Storm and the Fury podcast and got to the bit where you're discussing Alice's crappy little rental and had to laugh. It was actually my wife's car and that incongruity was precisely why I put it there. It was even the same color. Nice. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. those little little insights. Yeah, into, it's really nice. Yeah. And he's taking you know these elements from his real life and stuff like that. And uh, super cute. It's just so cool to hear from Fregredo too. So I'm oh, glad yeah. that he's he's out there listening. He's a member of the book club. Yeah. 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 When I posted the teaser for Witchfinder Lost and Gone Forever, Joshua Worley said the legend John Severin. I love the story. Remember, while looking at this, Mr. Severin was 88 years young when it was drawn. Beautiful work. Wow. Yeah, so I did not realize that. that. Wow. wow. Yeah, he was 88 years old, and he passed the following year. Wow. So, like, he worked, you know, right up until the end. He was producing awesome work, you know, for everybody, and we're still getting, we're still talking it's about it. We're still end. enjoying it. We'll yeah. always enjoy yeah. that work. Jan Niklas said, Morgan Kaler is great. Why did he never get his own series? He's the proto-Hellboy without the stone fist. He even acts like one. Lost and Gone Forever is my favorite Witchfinder miniseries because no other story in this series develops old Eddie so much. In this story, he has to accept that other cultures and viewpoints are as valid as his own. And we don't get that kind of story often. This also shows that there are so much more stories to be told in this setting. This is a sad tale of desperate people getting used and Eddie ends up getting used too. He's used to it. No wonder he feels so much for Hellboy in later years. Let us not forget the most important lessons that Beware the Ape repeats again. Canes are the most powerful weapon in existence, and apes are creatures of hell. Mr. Darwin was wrong. <laughs> As for the comments on the trailer, fans are from hell too, especially those that spend so much time ranting on a movie trailer without having seen the movie. I've never watched one of those. I just wait and see. Hear you next week. Yeah, thank you, Jan Niklas. Thank you. Always good to hear from, from Jan Niklas. Book club member. Yeah, yeah, all the book club members. Tech Pat De Sequoia said, Hey, you damn guys and gals. At the beginning, when y'all mentioned casting outrages, it reminded me of back in 2000, 2001, when so many fanboys were demanding that Vin Diesel play Hellboy what? if they ever made a Hellboy movie. Did that happen? <clears throat> I personally thought it was too funny and ridiculous, but Pitch Black had just come out and Diesel was a rising star. There are so many badly photoshopped fan-made pictures of it. The idea that there's probably an alternative universe somewhere in which this actually happened tickles me. But hey, what do I know? Maybe Diesel was fucking amazing as Hellboy and it made millions. And making this franchise instead of 10 Fast and the Furious movies, there were 10 Hellboy movies. Fucking wow. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? And like 
Okay. I, I, that I the, can't, but I like Vin Diesel, but look, I still can't imagine it. The fact that this is not some funny throwaway joke and is, in fact, a thing that happened. I think I do still, remember that happening. Really? Yeah. And so what? Like, what do these people have to say for themselves now? I like, I mean... I'm not going to see David Harbour, an excellent choice for this, but I advocated for there has to be at least one person where that venn diagram is real right you know what i mean yeah i love i would love to be able to talk to one of these people and be like so you're telling me no so but anyway i just uh yeah wow Wowzers. yeah wow that was a good comment i i totally forgotten about that man i want to i want to some of these <clears throat> photoshop pictures of vin diesel now yeah i don't i don't want to see it oh i do i think it'd be hilarious <laughs> oh no Taylor Dodderman said, Hey, you damn guys. I know it's been a while since I've commented, but I'm still listening every week and loving the content. Been listening at work, though, and always forget what I want to say by the time I get oh, home. No. But I knew I had to comment this week as Morgan Kaler is one of my favorite mm. characters in the Mignolaverse. He also says, I always thought it made more sense for Beware the Ape to happen prior to Lost and Gone Forever. One thing I did think of, and this may be proven wrong by others, in my headcanon, the last scene where they say they're going to blame the events on scientists they don't agree with could have been a tipping point for Edward Gray. I even thought that he may have gone to the Queen and explicitly requested a mission outside of London or even England, which is why Lost and Gone happened in Utah, for the time to clear his head. So, yeah, um, if uh, Beware the Ape had happened before, then that would have made, like, a catalyst for him to leave. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if it takes place before or after. But, you know, when Mark Tweedell helped put the reading order for us, that's how he put it. So I just, you know, I always trust in Mark. But I do like that reading on it. And he also says... Also, I share the same frustrations about people writing off the new film, specifically because there's a new actor... I like the old films and can't wait for a new one. Yeah, and they're still there. You can still watch them. Yeah, I know. You can still watch them. They're great. Jerry Turnbull said, The book here is a penny dreadful. Hugely popular magazines in the UK from the 1830s onwards. Thank you for... Those little comics. Thank you for leaving that there. It's not a comic. It's a penny dreadful. Yeah. That was uh, super cool. Something I did not know. So thank you for leaving those comments. That was neat. Thank you. Ross Ratke said, when you mentioned the monster dog in Witchfinder, it reminded me of a hybrid narrative documentary series I may or may not have played a role in producing while in film school. And so he sent me this video on Twitter, and it was about this kind of dog monster thing called the Shunka Wakaran. If you watch the whole thing, credits are at the end of the last episode. To spare you that, I directed episodes six and eight and edited a couple episodes and chased cows around on location. Nice. To be honest, I had no idea what we were making, and I'm still not sure if this was a joke. (laughs) Um, But I did watch that first one, and it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and it it talked about um, this, like creature that was it was actually taking other dogs or something oh. like that right. and they tried to shoot at it but it wouldn't stop oh. and all this kind of stuff so is it on youtube yeah it is on youtube we'll i can send you the link on it but he cool. posted on our facebook and also don't forget to follow ross he's doing sketches hellboy sketches every day ross until the Ratke. movie comes out yeah and so the that's club member it's <laughs> it's ross uh radke r-a-d-k-e and on twitter he's at r-t-r-a-d-k-e yeah i like his stuff yeah his, his artwork is really cool and i've been enjoying the hellboy stuff and then i think he always throws in like like he threw in a galactus there once oh yeah so that was a like, good one so it's like, always good to see like yeah. what him and strackbine come up with oh yeah, yeah they have good good stuff out there Mark Tweedell said, oh, my God, Kurt Russell would be a perfect Morgan Kaler. Right? 
So good. <laughs> this was actually the first Witchfinder story Mike Mignola and John Arcudi came up with, but Mike thought they couldn't introduce Sir Edward, a London-based investigator in the Wild West, so he wrote In the Service of Angels to go first. Mm. Also, the whole zombies as mindless corpses wandering around eating brains thing is very much a modern pop culture construction. They don't really exist like that in the Hellboy universe. Every time a zombie shows up, it's the traditional zombie, a meat puppet. That said, the modern version of the zombie still exists in the Hellboy universe as part of their pop culture. That's kind of a weird thing about reading these books, finding out which of our stories and myths become reality and which remain fiction. Huh. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I wonder what probably kicked that off. Was it Night of the Living Dead? Yeah, I think so. Well, Night of the Living Dead, they didn't just eat brains. They just ate the whole body and everything. It was... uh, No, but the shambly, mindless aspect um, of it. Like that's... He was saying that that's strictly modern. um, The movie Return of the Living Dead, which is kind of a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. uh, It's a whole thing. You have to look that up on your own. Um, (laughs) Okay. I think that was the first movie that they specifically ate brains. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And that is relatively modern, like 80s, right? Yeah, that would like, be like maybe early 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But again, the whole, the mindless thing part of it. Yeah. Like yeah. what? I'm trying to go back. I, I don't go back that far with my... Oh, yeah. But in Nine of the Living Dead, they are kind of just mindless, right? Yeah. But I'm, I'm saying my, my cinematic knowledge is not like vast and I can't right. remember people's names that I personally know a lot of the time. So remembering like actors and directors and right. movie titles and shit, I'm always like, John, who was that guy that was in that thing? He's married to what's her name? And it's very... You don't so. remember George Romero's name? I, yeah, there you Thank you, George Romero. Yeah. Thanks. Night of the Living Dead, a classic. Mark Tweedell also says, there's so much I want to say about Eris, but you're not there yet. Still, pay close attention. Ah. Yeah. I wasn't a- paying any attention. I'll pay a little bit of attention now. <laughs> And he also says, I agree with Danielle. I don't really care how the movies play out because I have the comics and no movie takes that away. There you go. But if they make a movie I like, that's even better. Hey, yeah, there you go. How about it? Jason Abaddon said, listening to the podcast, Danielle was against you guys doing a cheesy adaptation of the BPRD series with cardboard (laughs) costumes, but that would be great. I'm talking total popsicle stick monsters and an inflated white rubber gloves for Johan. It would be incredible. A total arts and crafts version. It'd be like early Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And some things I forgot to talk about. So when I was doing the post for the week, I went back to BPRD Garden of Souls to get screen grabs of Lord Glaren. Uh, uh, what's his name? Yeah. 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 The guy who he ends up shot, but then he's still like a zombie or whatever. You like how you said the guy's name and then I said, what's his name anyway? <laughs> <laughs> So you got to edit that. <laughs> and then, uh, so when I was looking at it, Guy Davis draws him with these little, like, hair horns. Yeah. Like, okay. his hair kind of curls up like that. Okay. And then, so when I went back to Lost and Gone Forever, you know, there's a flashback to this scene. All these people went into the church, and then the door is locked. Yeah. And then that symbol appeared on the floor. Yeah. So he's in there oh. right before the doors close. When those ladies are walking in, there's oh, the yeah. guy with the hair horns there. Oh, and I was like, oh, there's Lord Glaren. So yeah, I liked the little Easter egg. I didn't catch it until I went back the second time after I had looked at Garden of Souls. But that little detail, the little hair horns pointed it out. I thought that was really cool. That's good. All right. And now we're going to get to our book club for the week. This week we're talking about some BPRD 1940 stories, and we're going to start with the prologue. The prologue starts with, 
And what shall I find there? This was first published in MySpace Dark Horse Presents number 23 in June 2009. Written by Mignola and Joshua Dysart. Illustrated by Patrick Reynolds, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. And so I think we saw Patrick Reynolds last. He did one of those Witchfinder stories, um, Catherine Baker. Oh, okay. When we read that one on our first Witchfinder episode. I do enjoy the art on this one, though. Yeah, I really like Patrick Reynolds, and I like how he draws Broom like this young version of Broom, right? I don't know. It looks like a young man. Yeah, in this bottom panel, it like you can tell that it's him, but he looks yeah, he looks really young. It's good. I like the way he draws this uh, church door, the (laughs) angle of it, and everything. Just makes it seem so massive on that quarter quarter panel. Yeah, and so we open in. Oh, you mean like the the art of like being able to make something look so expansive in such a small amount Mm -hmm. of space? Yeah, that really has so much to do with like uh, like you were saying, like the angle of it, like the foreshortening. I know what you're thinking too is. I wish I could draw like that. Yep. <laughs> and you know what? It's actually, I feel like it's probably one of those things, like it's a click moment. Like it mm. just clicks on where you're, because I've been reading all these books about like, about that exact thing, about the, like the angle of stuff. And like, it's very like the way that people train themselves how to do it is they're drawing all these like lines and right. it's a really uh, perspective. weird perspective and all this, yeah. the foreshortening perspective and all that yeah. crap. And like, I'm, I'm not great at it, uh, but I... I imagine that if you just draw enough stuff, oh yeah, you'll end up being good at like I don't know how much stuff this guy had to draw to be able to do this. You know, you think about it and it's just like thousands of hours. Oh, yeah, totally agree. Of practice doing this. No, I, I agree. You can cut all that out. I'm sorry, I just get fascinated with stuff no, like that. No, that's great. We open in nineteen thirty eight. This is two months before he joins the British Paranormal Society. So this is before Hellboy or any of that. When he introduces himself, who does he look like? to you in that panel i don't know he does look like somebody he looks to me. like somebody doesn't he he i he don't makes, know the the he, face is very familiar he looks like an actor he makes me think of 1980s john crier mm. oh he does kind of look like john crier <laughs> but i was going to talk about this oh, uh, sorry sorry i was going to talk about this church St. Bertrand de Comage, that's where the story takes place, and this is a real place. In southwest France, yep. near this river that I'm not going to try and pronounce, because I'll probably make it sound bad. He tells the monk that he's he has an affection for humble thing, and when he opens the door, I like this panel where he opens the door, because he really does look like he is... Uh, he, he could be in his 20s. Yeah. yeah, but he really looks like he does really have an appreciation for this place. You know what I mean? Like he's oh, really. Yeah. Oh, when he opens it, yeah, yeah. on yeah. the next and he, page, and he, yeah, and he looks inside. Yeah, um, like he, like he's he's super excited about the architecture. Right, like we we find out that he has ulterior motives, but yeah. in this moment, he does really seem like he's just genuinely like he's there enjoying because himself. He, he, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Broom says that he he explains in the little like um, what are these like thought boxes that he recently graduated from Oxford. And so this trip is like a gift to himself to get more books and like to see all these different sites and learn about the folklore and stuff like that. And, you know, I know that Mignola obviously loves learning about folklore. So I wonder if, you know, like those are some of the same interests that Mignola would have, which would be to just go learn about the folklore of some weird place, you know. So do you think Broom might be a um, stand-in? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, because Mignola is Hellboy's father, too, essentially, right? He's the creator. So, 
Anyway. I always think Gary Oldman, though, when I see him. Oh, yeah. Okay. He does kind of look like Gary Oldman. Not, not even th- necessarily that This would be a young would, Gary Oldman. Well, yeah, but not even necessarily that he looks like Gary Oldman, just that he would be played well by Gary Oldman, maybe. Yeah, I could see that. You think? Yeah. I don't know. And I just like Gary Oldman. <laughs> well, I mean, he is great. <laughs> and as Broom enters the church, you know, he tells this monk that he just wants to hang out in there for the night. He wants some alone time to be with God. You know, he has right. ulterior motives, but that's what he tells the monk here. That's pretty good. And he says, you know, that they'll have breakfast in the morning. So the old monk bid him good night and left him alone. And none too soon, as my excitement was becoming overwhelming, and he kind of runs up this staircase, he immediately went to work. I and like I, when he takes out this hammer. Yeah. You're, you're just like, oh, shit. And I like this kind of like mood panel on this statue. What the fucking um, rip shit up. On the up. previous page that uh, Patrick Reynolds does. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so he just starts pulling up the floorboards with his hammer and stuff like that. He's just like wrecking stuff. And he, so he's not even doing a good job. He's just... No, he's really not. <laughs> oh, man. And like, not in a way that he could actually just replace them. Like, why yeah. are you cracking them apart? You could just take the nails out and lift right, them up. Right. It's a very old church. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that was my thought too. I mean, it's just like, okay, I get it. There's something under there you need, but why you gotta be uh, destroying the shit? Right, he's very destructive, and it's very kind of like this busting is a different, this wall apart. Yeah, this is a. I, I like seeing this side of of this kind of character. You well, know and what he's I mean? like he's he's very young, and that yeah. kind of that belies a certain growth. Yeah, right. Because yeah. the character we we know like later would probably only do that if it was like oh the universe is in danger right, we have right, to get yeah. through this wall we'll replace it later sorry guys but this guy's very excited to just bust shit up just to like get a thing right you know what i mean in the thought boxes we learned that broom's uncle had told him this story about medieval priests 700 years ago and too terrified and ignorant to destroy the thing they hid it instead so there's like something hidden in there that they were afraid of I like the look on his face when he finds it. And he pulls out a bottle, too. Yeah, he's immediately like, yeah, before I even unwrap it, I'm going to take a drink of this thing and reward myself. He's very into rewarding himself on this little trip here. It's a very, this is a very in-your-20s kind of a thing, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I was here for the thrill, the risk, the experience, to cross one flight of fancy off a list of many, and yet here it was before me. And he opens it, and he takes out this painting... And so this painting, it's a portrait of Pierre Le Buge. Is that how you would say that? Yeah, I, I, more or less. <laughs> He's a cler- it's a clergy portrait. They were rare from the period, speaking to the ego of its subject. He had this piece done, and then when when it was finished, you know, there's this like creepy blue that demon. weird little blue guy, yeah. that blue monster dude, is so fucking creepy looking. Yeah, and it's very much like. We haven't seen stuff that really looks like that. Yeah. It's so this very... artist is very kind of different, kind of going a different direction than we've seen as far as monster design, right? Yeah. Super creepy. Right. Well, it kind of reminded me of the time, too. Like, uh-huh. that's yes. what it, you know, that's Absolutely. a very, I don't know, of the time. If you see pictures of like demons, they usually have that kind of crazed yes. expression. So do you yeah. think that, face. The, that the artist drawing our. BPRD book here is like trying to okay if I was drawing this time period how would it look right that's almost like trying to go back and listen to a conversation that you don't have a recording of you're trying to like piece it together through pieces of art and literature and like looking at this like almost having to look at kind of a style 
of the time and trying to like hear artistically a conversation and express right. that without being in it like yeah well we're so gonna, interesting to me we're, we're gonna talk about this a lot more but one of my favorite things and i talked about this on previous episodes one of my favorite things of this whole universe is how they use historical fiction uh-huh. Oh, and yeah. they really ramp up the historical fiction on these 1940 stories because it's rife well, with all I mean, these, you know, historical events. Nazis, so. yeah, yeah. So, I mean. Um, no, it's super cool. But yeah. I just really enjoy any time they do stuff like that. And these kind of little details yeah. by the artist just make it all the more richer. It really kind of makes you feel something, feel creeped out, you know, yeah. by it. Yeah. Well, it, that's that's I guess that's. Yeah. Like you were saying, I guess that's the artist's intention is to try and put you in that. If you were really looking at something sure, yeah. from that time period, what would it might it look like? And you as the artist get to kind of try and put your reader into that headspace. It helps get into the headspace because it makes you feel like it's like something you can see in the real world. Sure. And so it helps bring you into right. this world. Yeah. yeah. Such good storytelling. And so apparently the artist, considerably less sane than when he started it, claimed that the monster had been there the entire time. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> He and the father were then promptly murdered by Pierre's congregation. Oh, that's not funny. You know, it had become like a kind of folklore. Like some people even questioned over time that this thing even existed. It took a sharp turn, though. Like it's kind of one of those things like, oh, well, the painter's crazy. He's having crazy. Right. He's having crazy hallucinations. But back then it was like, he's a fucking witch. Yeah. Kill him. Right. Immediately murder this man. Like they murdered him. <laughs> Holy shit. And so Broom, you know, now he's discovering this kind of myth painting, you know, that people don't even really know or question it exists. So he's like, I'm going to take this back. Right. My name will be made. I'll have a reputation, you know, all this kind and this of stuff. And this is a little a little Broom that we we don't know. Right. A little Broomy here. Well, you know, if you think about it, the thing that causes death is he went on the Cavendish expedition. Yeah. yeah. Like, he was like, hey, you guys, I'll go with you to Antarctica to go look for this Saduhem thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, in the comics version, he is kind of like... Well, but I think it transitions from personal gain into the good of right. the world sure. kind yeah. of a thing where That's he still has... Yeah, there's this underlying current of like, I'm an adventurer. I'm going to discover things and yeah i think like you said the the look on his face when he entered the church and then i'm sure we'll see we have seen other examples of him having this reverence or this awe but that's just an example of a person who can be in the moment and enjoy surrounding i think that the underlying like the underpinning of the whole thing is is motivation and i think you can have you know you can have several different motivations for having that attitude about the world it can either be i'm gonna be famous i'm gonna be Right. The new Indiana Jones, you know. Sure. <laughs> or it can be like actually the we're all in jeopardy, we gotta check this out. So but for the good of, of the, the people. Right. And so Broom explains that, you know, finding this thing, it also made him really afraid. And there was kind of like this mounting fear. He explains that's one of the reasons why he started drinking immediately when he found it to try and kind of drown the dread, he says. And then he feels something in the room with him. That kind of, that mounting fear thing of like stemming from a physical object sort of a deal. Yeah. yeah. There's a, a lot of, some of my favorite stories have that element of like, oh, this physical thing actually changed 
the air right. around or like the mental condition of the people in the sure. room. Everyone was freaking. I mean, you know, uh, I think a lot of my favorite stories kind of start that way. Sure. Of like, there's a, you know what I mean? It kind of makes me think of when that ghost frog was hovering over that one guy and, yeah. he, and he was really sick and throwing up. Like mm. we've seen kind of some sense of that before. And so Broom says, a sickening scent arose, suddenly fetid and sour. The room began to grow hot. My legs weakened. My stomach cinched. And in the darkness, he sees this kind of like blue monster coming out. And it reaches out for him. And so he immediately takes the torch that he had and burns the portrait with it. And the monster catches on fire. He's such a smart dude. Yeah. I never would have... I'm such a freaking idiot. I would have been like, what's happening? Right, exactly. And so he says, I knew that in burning the painting, I'd live to see the dawn, though it's not the sort of knowledge they equipped you with at Oxford. No, in these things, I am a self-educated man. That's that street smarts. Yeah, well, he had been, I guess, learning about folklore and all this other kind of stuff. However, I didn't leave the church immediately. I was no longer afraid, you see. In fact, I don't think I've ever felt fear since. So, yeah, he kind of got over it in that quick acting and knowing what to do. And I think it also kind of reaffirmed, like, whatever self-education he had been doing in terms of learning about folklore right. and about demons and all this kind of stuff. In that moment, he was able to use that knowledge and save his life. So then he's like, I can do this. It's like yeah. when you get out you of know school. What I mean? It's yeah. like people tell you. You know, yeah, sure, we're in advanced algebra, but you're never really going to use it, so who cares, right? right. It's like when you get on the railroad, you're like, it's true, I never actually fucking <laughs> used that shit. But it's, you know, he's he did all this, he's a professor or whatever right, the fuck, yeah. and he did all this book learning, and, you know, what did it get him in the end? He ended up having it. Well, also, he got himself in that situation. Well, so sure, yeah, but he knew what to do. Good for him on he, getting yeah. himself prepared, out. But, yeah. but no, but this, it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and you're like, just stab him in the brains. Shoot him in the brains. Yeah. Why doesn't anyone know about this? <laughs> or it's a vampire. Yeah, I got to get him in the heart or whatever the fuck you got to do. And so it's one of those things where he, for the first time you're reading something and you're like, ugh, another person who's not going to know what to do, but he knew what to do. Right, so, yeah. Again, Patrick Reynolds just does some awesome work here. And we never get to see the thing. Yeah. We only really see it when it's engulfed in flames. I really kind of like that. It kind yeah. of keeps that mystery about it or something. I don't know. Um, but just a very cool little story. I suppose nothing ever compares to the first time. Yeah. And we see Broom leaving the church with his bottle and his bag. A yeah. learned young man. Yeah, I really like that story. That was really cool. So that's just to kind of show, like, he was once uh, a dewy-eyed little... <laughs> right. Yeah. Idealist. <laughs> yeah. So that was like his first encounter with a monster. I mean, I'm assuming he's read about him in books and, you know, things, so he knew what to do. But I I gathered from the story that was the very first time he actually encountered. Right. Like yeah. That. So that's pretty cool. You know, he, he, stood, he was like, oh, I know what to do. Yeah. yeah. I guess he had learned stuff. Maybe it seems like he had learned about some of this stuff from his uncle. He went to Ghostbusters school. Yeah. Well, his uncle told him about it and maybe that led him to investigate it more. Yeah, his uncle yeah. is a professor at Ghostbusters school. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Are you going to write the new? I am. Broom's Uncle miniseries by Danielle Renee. I'd read that. Okay. And then I talk about it on the podcast. Hey. And then yeah. and then other people would talk about it, and then they would tell us what they think, and then we would talk about what they talk about, and then friendship. And then we're friends. 
So I do want to mention this. This story bears a great many similarities to Aim R. James' ghost story, Canon Alberic's scrapbook. Both tales feature a haunted illustration that depicts a demon, a haunted church, the demon later coming to terrify the protagonist, and the demon being banished with the burning of the illustration. Like you do. The setting of that story is also St. Bertrand de Comage, hey. which is the setting of this story. So do you think that that's an homage? Yeah, I definitely think that Mignola and or Dysart are probably pretty big Amar James fans. Beautiful. Yeah. Safe Wait. to say. Maybe Brew also read that story. Oh yeah, maybe maybe he read it in. He's like, I'm gonna to... go there to that place. Yeah. Hey, that's kind of meta. I like because that. that's the whole thing. That's why he's there. Oh wow. And I do want to before we go on, I want to quickly shout out the Hellboy Wiki. If you're ever looking for like Hellboy knowledge or anything like that, I mean, hopefully you tune into the podcast too. But if you're looking for stuff beyond that, the Hellboy Wiki is a great resource. That's where I get a lot of my info about the publishing dates and artist credits. Or just ask Jerry Turnbull, honestly. The man knows absolutely everything. I don't understand. Shout out to Mike Mignola's art on Facebook. So next we're going to read Bishop Oleg's Devil. This next story here, Dave Stewart is not the colorist. Yeah, he is not the colorist. Is that the first time that he's not the colorist? No, it's just for this this story and then the five issues after it. Okay, don't scare me. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah no. i thought you were talking about he's not i was like well no no i'm just saying because hellboy just, in hell is gonna have to be him right? no of course no i'm saying for this story and the rest of the stories we're gonna cover today oh on this so you on left that part out that scared the shit out okay. of me okay <laughs> no 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 uh, uh no we'll have plenty of dave stewart but this not, is... this, not that this this guy doesn't do a great job this is great oh he does yeah. a great job well Let's, can you uh what's his name um nick filardi yeah nick filardi well, I was I was reading it in the introduction. They, Scott Alley talked about how they when they brought the artist on Paul Azaceta. When they brought him, uh, Paul Azaceta on, he brought his the colorist with him, and cool. They, they were uh, said something like they were kind of nervous or something. And, it but, did say that. Yeah. So there's a great forward by Scott Alley, and he says that him and Mike were a little nervous, but that Nick was gentle. That's yeah. what it said. <laughs> but, well, they're a team, so I'm sure that they work well together, and right. that always, always is going to equal something better than what you would get if you were just going to throw people together. Well, it it also got me thinking about like you know there are like artists that always have the same the people. same team, yeah. like you know like Jim Lee always has Scott Williams and uh, and uh, James Sinclair as his colorist. Well, Mignola always and has Mignola has Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart so. Yeah, and. Um, this was a team that you were saying, we're yeah. not going to be split up. We work well. Let's yeah. just give us a shot. And this artist, I mean, the artist is probably like, well, I know this color right. complements my work very sure. well. Right. So, Exactly. Yeah. And so thank you for mentioning that forward. Scott Alley says, none of us had worked with Paul as a seta, but we knew his work and he seemed like the perfect addition to the Mignola books. Clear, sober storytelling, high contrast without looking like any kind of Mignola imitator with an approach to real, relatable people, which would make our soldiers stand out as individuals. Paul brought in colorist Nick Filardi, and it's always scary for Mike and me to work with someone besides Dave Stewart, but Nick was gentle. Nick Filardi, you know, has a lot of subtlety, has a lot of these muted tones that blend so well and really tell the story properly, and I would say comparable to Dave Stewart. Not not saying that the styles are... Like like Nick Flaherty is trying to imitate Dave Stewart's style or anything like that. I'm just saying, they're they're, you know, both of them. Their work is is excellent and tells the story well, and is something that yeah, we are used yeah. to that level of quality. And so I didn't 
skip a beat when i was reading this i mean i just was like yeah right. <laughs> excellent coloring as always oh shit it's a different color it's like yeah you know yeah so uh but thanks for mentioning all that bishop Oleg's devil was one of the three stories published in the hellboy free comic book day issue in may of 2008 the free comic book issue also featured the mole and out of reach which we've all we've read all those stories now so the mole was the uh-huh. one Right before um, Hellboy Darkness Calls, where he, right. that mole grows real big and then a monster comes out of it. Horrible. And then Out of Reach was the story where Johan steals that knife from ah. the boot of that guy. Okay. And so so now, if you had that issue, you would be like, oh, I've, I've read all these and I understand what they are. When I first read this story, I kept um, thinking about how at first, like when you're just looking at it and you're reading it, the style seems so loose, but it's... It's actually very, the composition is excellent and it's very, it's a perfect style. For, like the movement is so good, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Is yeah. that the, it's so fluid and it really, I think it lends itself well to storytelling because of that fluidity and because of that. But then it, it's, it's actually not loose in another way because, I don't know, you rarely get something so detailed from something so simple, I guess. And so I really, yeah, I like it a lot. That's a it's, good way to put it. It's obviously very different from, Mignola style and so-and-so yeah. style. It's, it's different from all the other artists we've seen. But, again, really belongs in this universe. Love I, it. Really love it. Yeah, I think there's something about not only going into the past, but also most of the story is, is regular people. You yeah. know what I mean for the yeah. most part? Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of supernatural elements, but and it isn't quite old school, and it isn't quite new school, right, and it isn't quite. Yeah. It's just very. And I think it just kind of captures that really good feel. Sure, it just kind of puts us in a really, really good spot to accept where we are in this story. You know, he says a lot with a little. Yeah, which is kind of a common theme yeah. with the artists that we've been. We'll, seeing. we'll talk about that a little bit more. Sure. I, I love that. And so this story, this tells of Trevor Broom meeting Doctor Howard Eaton. And this story is told for the perspective of Eaton. He's talking about meeting Broom from his point of view. And so they had received communication from this Lord Marco Petrov claiming he was in possession of the Dialogos Goetta. Look at everyone's gestures and body language and stuff. It's just very realistic, but also it's got that kind of quality of just being so loose. Yeah. I'll stop. It's good. I like it. (laughs) So apparently this Dialogos Goetta... Is that how you say that? Sure. Goetta. Did we decide if it's Goet- Goetia or Gosha? I have I no know. idea. I have but no anyway, clue. so this book is a long lost grimoire, famous for its wealth gospel secrets. So it had these, I guess, gospels in it for wealth and prosperity and stuff like that. And I, I have read uh, a little bit about wealth gospel kind of believes that the bible is a contract and so if you do what's in the contract then you're going to get like how are you supposed to do things how are you supposed to do things <laughs> that directly contradict each other every single fucking sure, yeah, page right. like so this lord petrov he claimed to have this book and that he wanted to donate it to their library's collection and so broom and eaton were at a residence in the british museum library and so this book, originally published in 1529 by Ukrainian bishop Alexander, who sold his soul, as it is said, to the devil himself, whispered its secrets into his ear as he scribed. So they really want this book. You know, there's all this, like, cool legend about it, and all, it's supposed to, like, have this wealth gospel in it. So this Lord Petrov, they're going to go visit him and kind of see if they can get this thing. Apparently this bishop 
Alexander, he took the text with him to be buried with him in an above ground crypt. But then the crypt itself disappeared, and now this guy has it. So these men are having to do all these different things here. They're on a fucking boat. They're on a fucking train. Right. They're passing. Are they like they're passing behind enemy lines and shit? There's it, tanks with fucking Nazi flags. It on does it? look like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this is kind of serious. Now they're riding on horseback. They look <laughs> a little bit freaked out yeah. through a forest. I mean, when you're riding on a horseback through a forest behind Nazi lines, like. What what are you going to get? Right. Like, where yeah. are you going? <laughs> well, they say that they're in eastern Galicia, and that's in northern Spain. Oh, okay. And so they're at Petrov Manor. So they get there after nightfall, and they go inside. And as soon as they go inside, they hear distant, disturbed sobbing. That's not good. <laughs> that's messed up. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before, as if the bones of the place itself were suffering. Eden recalls. They're told that the master will see them in the morning and they're, you know, they go to bed. So they go in there and Broom is kind of standing at the door and they realize that they've been locked in, right? So they can't even leave their quarters. This guy is saying, I was a glorified librarian with a curiosity for the occult. Little more. Right, yeah. So he's he's kind of freaked out a little bit. And then Broom is very like, they've locked us in. Yeah. He's very calm and collected. He knows what to expect. He's He was in a church and burned a demon up. So right, he knows. Yeah. Howard, he remembers what Trevor was thinking. I don't know, but he stood there a long time listening. And so in the morning, the house had gone silent and they go into Lord Petrov's room and it smelled in there. And they say that it smelled of rot and dust and mold, all thinly veiled with sandalwood. Well, and I actually read that a little differently in my head. When I was reading this, I read that as they're trying to put us somewhere because that's, I don't know, like, you know, when you, when you, smells are so apparently supposed to be very strongly tied to memory. And I don't know if okay. you have experienced it, but I kind of do understand, like, I do experience that. I do experience like, oh, when you smell a thing, you're like, oh, immediately transported into a different mindset, into a different place, you know? And so... Lord Petrov's room smelled of rot and dust and mold, all thinly veiled with sandalwood, like he's trying to put you there. Yeah, oh, okay. And that's something that, I don't know if you've ever, I've smelled that exact smell. Right. So I know, like, it's a very, it's Creepsville, you know, so it's good. It's good stuff. Anyway, I I like that. I know what you mean. Sometimes, like, I'll smell something and be like, it'll take me back to places and times. Smell a book. And uh, sometimes people that aren't around anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Or like a time when you... Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes, like, rain will do it. He'll be like, ah. Right. Rain. (laughs) (laughs) So they're talking to Lord Petrov, and he's he's this old man in the bed. And he says, no more than two centuries since I first forged the path to the disappearing crypt. So he's 200 years old. Yeah. I was like, that's crazy. At the very least. And he says this crypt, it had been untied from the world, you see orbiting it you understand but like all secrets it longed to be discovered there was scattered knowledge to be gathered puzzles to be solved yes i spent my youth seeking the clinical magic and superstition science necessary once i had the understanding i cut my way from this world and into this bishop's crypt and i took his book from his old dead hands and so he points over and there it is right this dialogus goetica looks super cool goetta i want to read that 
source of uh, I, need, he, I need a lectern also i like this it's very lovingly carved yeah. and painted little lectern he says it's the source of unending fortune of beautiful copulations of utter material power but i'm done with the book and the book is done with me i give it to you a gift all you need is to simply reach out and take it. Broom, he's like, he makes up this thing, right? He's like, yeah. I'm not prepared to authenticate it at this. So he's like, he's not immediately going for it. I don't have all my my stuff. Yeah, that I need to look at, I this, need thing. To look I at this thing. I got to stall for a little while longer. And so Petrov says, that's okay. You know, you can hang out here and spend your time thinking about what you're going to do with all the money you're going to make from this thing, you know? Always be weary of somebody offering you something that yeah. involves money. Like right, that. yeah. Like, mm, no. Well, and, and so, his whole and, thing, he's not stupid. He's like, I see. Well, oh, then yeah. you're going to stay here until you're ready, you know? Yeah. Chill it, out in the grounds. You're definitely a prisoner here. Right. <laughs> like, well, it's very ominous. And, you know, he said he stood there listening to the door the whole night. He's probably putting two and two together. Right, yeah. yeah. Oh, Broom knows what's going on, but so the guy narrating it is us, right? Yes, yeah, We Howard, don't know yeah. what's going on. So we're little new newborn fawns, and I, I like that. I like that the catalyst is this guy that's kind of... Yeah. That makes yeah. us feel like we're uh, already on even footing. And because when it's being... Sorry. No, go ahead. When it's being narrated by a guy who's like, I don't know what's going on. We're supposed to connect to that guy because yeah. he's the narrator, right? But then also on a level of we're on unsure footing and we're so willing to suspend our disbelief at this point to right. like enjoy the weird. And so Trevor Broom is like our hero who knows what's going on. So we trust him automatically. And so yeah. it's a very, it's such a good storytelling. All of it. It's and so good. I guess it's also introducing us to this version of Broom because mm -hmm. we haven't really seen Broom a right. whole lot. We saw him in yeah. like the Midnight Circus and some little scenes where he sends Hellboy off to go do something. But other than that... Well, the very first thing we ever read that had anything to do with Hellboy, he was immediately killed. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> but we had this sense that he was such an important man and that we should really feel this loss. Right. So coming back and reading this is really rewarding. Oh, yeah. Well, and then like all those times we've seen like in the flashbacks with uh, Broom and Hellboy yeah. and just the way that, you know, the interaction between them. Yeah, just, I, I yeah. mean, it just makes me excited to actually get to read some really cool Broom stories. Yeah, yeah. totally. For sure. There'd yeah. be a spinoff Broom show already. Yeah, definitely. And so this next night, the sounds of suffering began again. And so throughout the day, they had stuffed ripped cloth into the lock so that way they would be able to get out instead of being locked in the room again. So they get out and they start navigating stuff and looking around. It was no surprise to find the chilling sounds coming from inside Lord Petrov's chamber. Though what I saw in that room, I cannot easily describe here. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. Yeah. So what do you what do you see on this? What what are we looking at on this bottom panel? That's a That's a yikes. That's a... Fucked up starfish looking monster. It's like a giant starfish monster. Yeah, and it's and it's on Petrov, right? Petrov's naked and it's on top of him. I mean, I, yeah, he's like probably like sucking the. Well, he's doing out what demons stomach. do is like right. a soul or something. Yeah. Feeding on his like psychic essence. essence. Doesn't look good. And so Howard immediately goes for the book, and Broom's like, "No, Howard, don't do yeah, it." Yeah, like you don't know? fucking touch that thing. And and Howard, in his recollection, he's like. There was a fleeting, greedy moment in which I was fearful we would flee without the book. So, like, I wonder if the book even, like, was, has this yeah. kind of temptation. Like, yeah, sure. you know what I mean? And so he's like, even overcome by it. Like, 
pick me up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You want me? And I so the monster. when Howard touches the book, then this starfish thing comes at him, and Lord Petrov just turns to stone and just shatters. Uh, Professor Vroom is like, throw me the book, Howard. So he throws it to him. And he tries to stay and fight the monster, but it was meaningless to the monster now because now it's going after Broom. And now we can see that the monster has like hands, like, hands like on the end of his. Oh yeah. So so the end of each finger, quote unquote, of the starfish has five fingers. So it's like that Doctor Strange scene where right. all the <laughs> fingers and the hands. And it's got like this terrible set of teeth maw like in the super middle super good it, right? design for yeah. a monster very creepy Love and as it. this thing is chasing after broom it says don't fear the guardian in time you'll become accustomed to its nightly visits and the rewards oh such glorious rewards and we see lord petrov's head uh, his stone head sitting there on the pillow yeah, that's a no from me yeah. And and right? so, yeah. so as Broom is running away with the book, he gets escorted into this room by the butler guy. And he takes him to that chamber, right? This is the above ground crypt right. where okay. the book was being kept. And so Broom goes up there and with this this top panel is so frightening. So he's like, frightening. He's like trying to put the book back in this guy's hand, but this giant starfish thing is like Sorry. running at him. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very... <laughs> But I, I, as soon as he puts it back in his hand, he appears in the room with Howard, the room that they were in previously. And he's all covering his head, yeah. right? Because he yeah. thinks this thing that is thing like is... attacking. Yeah, it's not about to attack. It's already attacked. Like, uh, it's like, going to get him. I really like that, how he covers himself up because he thinks he's about to get eaten oh, by this man. giant thing. But he just appears in Howard's room out, out of thin air. I was never the same after that night, Howard remembers. Trevor Broom, younger than me by a decade had become a model by which I could live a fulfilling and adventurous life. One need not fear the dark with a man like that on one side. And we see this engraving on the crypt where this book was kept. Who who was this? Uh... Bishop Oleksandr? Oh, yeah, Bishop Oleg. So Bishop he Oleg. sold his soul to the fucking devil or something? Yeah, so we see this inscription on the top of Bishop Oleg's crypt. And it says, Depositum Custody. The words there are a reference to another M.R. James ghost story. This one is called The Treasure of Abbot Thomas, which features the word Depositum Custody translation, keep that which is committed to thee on a crypt as well. Huh. Yeah, so that's another story by the same ghost story writer as the previous one. So the the book in this story, right? So this yeah. like book that's tied to this monster... It may have been inspired by legends surrounding the Codex Gigas, or the giant book. It's the largest extant medieval illuminated manuscript in the world. That means it's it's illustrated, right? Yeah, well, well, illuminated is like at the beginning of each chapter, the first letter yeah. is like real big and it's all detailed. Well, no, I know that, color. but then like yeah. the monks, they would sit down and they would fucking get their inks out and they would yeah. totally... Yeah. All, they would go to town like the margins and shit would have all illustrations all in there and right so this codex gigas it's also known as the devil's bible because nice. of a very unusual full page portrait of the devil and the legend surrounding its creation so cool. I, I looked this up so it's so first of all the the book is humongous right yeah and then in the middle of it there's just one page that has this 
Portrait of the Devil. Sounds dope it, as hell. And it cool. looks kind of like the monster in the previous story where it's all crazed oh, cool. looking. You know what I mean? And nice. so one of the so there's a legend surrounding this Codex Gigas. And so the legend is um, there was this scribe and he was uh, he broke his monastic vows. And so he was going to be walled up alive. That was what his, the fuck. That was his sentence for doing that. That's and the so sentence. In order to avoid this penalty, he promised that in one night he would create one book to glorify the monastery forever, including all human knowledge. And so near, so he starts writing this book, and then as it gets closer to midnight, he realizes that he's not going to finish. Right. So then he uh, makes a special prayer. But not to God, to the fallen angel Lucifer, asking him to help him finish the book in exchange for his soul. And so the devil supposedly completed the manuscript, and the monk added the picture out of gratitude for his aid. Fuck yeah. That sounds like a Dio album. And so people have actually tried to recreate this work. And it's estimated that reproducing it by hand without the illustrations or embellishments, just just the just the calligraphy would have taken five years of nonstop oh, writing. That's so cool. So, you know what I mean? So that's this legend around this Codex Gigas. And so that's I like wonder if, if they it, took some inspiration from that for this. If instead of having a like a fiddle contest, you had like a book writing contest. Right. <laughs> fucking devil. You're still there five years later. Yeah, so I thought that was really cool. I love learning about all that kind of stuff. And now we're going to no, go on to the cool. yeah. And now we're going to go on to the main story, BPRD nineteen forty six. This was published as a five issue miniseries from January to May two thousand eight. It's written by Mignola and Joshua Dysart, which the previous story was also written by those two. And it's also illustrated by Paul Azaceta, colors by Nick Filardi, and letters by Clem Robbins. Good stuff. I love this cover. Yeah, this is a great cover to uh, we get Mignola's version of a lot of the events for this, including these Nazi soldiers, right? Yeah. It's a pretty cool design. Well, this particular story has so many excellent covers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That to me, like this one, I'm just like, I can't wait to get to the one that has the fucking <laughs> yeah. whatever on there. Yeah. Like, there's so many good covers in this um, in the story that this one kind of ends up being like on the bottom of the list for me honestly. right yeah no yeah i would probably agree with that but it's still a great cover in yeah terms no of for sure totally if you had to rank all the covers from this story alone but we open up on this one scene so we get like this kind of flashback and we're just kind of thrown in here we just see these scientists and they're getting ready to like inject this woman with something they have this woman chained up and she's going to be injected with this giant needle but then it turns out that she's a vampire. Yeah, and she's asking for her family. We reveal that it's December 1944, so this would be right in the middle of the of World War II. We realize that she's a vampire, and I love how the color shifts, too, from these kind of like dark blue, right. gray panels to kind of these all red panels. Yeah. And she breaks out of the shackles where they have her, and she just starts tearing shit up. Like, that's the thing is that I could... <laughs> exactly, like, that's the thing that I couldn't... I was like, oh, wait, did she... Is she a vampire? Well, the panels turn completely red from here on out. Right. So I'm going to assume that she's a vampire. Yeah. And like you said, like she starts she starts tearing shit up. It's fucking pretty uh, dramatic with the Nazis. They have this like it's kind of like a one of those weird lightsaber things. Yeah, this kind yeah. of reminded me a little bit of those prods that who is it? The Osiris Club that they have oh, when sure. they're trying to get Hellboy and then on Witchfinder yeah. they're also trying to get that big I vampire I was going to say monster. it's like those things that you that the red guards have. 
that they're not they're not lightsabers, but they block lightsabers. The uh, Emperor's Praetorian Guards. Yeah, the Praetorian Guards. Oh, yeah, nice. That's what I was thinking of when I saw them, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they kind of, like, light up, and so they have these crosses with the uh, swastika on them. Horrible. So somehow that makes me think that that would just not work, because, you know, I mean... They're obviously no, Nazi loving not, bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they get the power of the cross? <laughs> Wait, we learned in uh, in w- just the story last last week. I was gonna say last year, just in the story last week, Lost and Gone Forever. You know, Morgan Kaler even said, "You put two sticks together, yeah. and that does something, and you don't call that magic." Yeah. So I want like so I feel like the Nazis here they're just employing whatever Absolutely means they anything have anything they can. You yeah. know what I mean? They're they have just... a, they have a whole vampire crew right, right? they have yeah. a whole vampire division so like they're gonna have all the whatever things the official vampire vests have a little oh, yeah. you know that's what you use so it's like they were i mean they were putting swastikas on fucking teapots though like they had swastika oh, yeah, they, on they, literally they, right. on like really spoons did. and shit they did it up so these guards they kind of they're able to pin her back by using these um, lightsaber cross things that they have. I'm not saying like that they're like lightsaber. It's like the things that... I don't know the names of all the things. Right, yeah. So we cut over to Berlin, 1946, and we're in the, in the American sector, and we see Broom and Howard again. This is a fucked up scene. Yeah, and they're driving through all the ruins of Berlin after the war. So this is supposedly after the, just after the end of World War II, and they're kind of going through with this army crew in a jeep and they're just kind of seeing all the wreckage the army guys explaining that all the homes are minced they've got no heat the place is dripping with disease and nobody can get a fair shake because the black market is king and people are like starving to death and- right yeah. he says it's immoral what he could do with a pack of cigarettes oh right and they see some kids there picking up rubble in exchange for food rations. And so a lot of this stuff is based on history, right? You know, yeah, a lot yeah. of these cities were ravaged after World War II. And they see this woman standing in the hole, like in a giant hole where her house was or whatever. Well, you know. Where someone's house was. Right. Well, it's like there's a hole in, in the house. <laughs> yeah. I actually watched this like documentary not too long ago. It was all about Europe after World War II. And it okay. talked about how like how they had to go through all the rebuilding and you know it is very fascinating i wish i'd take in notes to put you in the historical space you know they mentioned like you know the russians were a big part of the allied force but then they have their own kind of you know stalin was in charge of russia too so some of that you know like uh, they brought down the nazis but then they were also having their own thing that was very bad and so what one of the soldiers mentions here is that you know, the Russians were rolling in there like wild animals and they just did whatever they wanted and they would just say that it was payback. It was a really brutal time after the war. Yeah. And I mean, with the whole splitting of the country into four parts, so weird. <laughs> yeah, and they really kind of try to put you in the headspace of where all these people are. And they meet this general, I guess he's like the army general or something. They're in his office and he explains, you know, that it's pronounced broom. Because he even starts saying Bruton. Oh, yeah, it's the colonel. Yeah, because the colonel's trying to say Bruton. He's trying to pronounce it the way that it is, yeah. Do we ever get an explanation why that's pronounced Bruton? No, I don't don't think we do. Well, uh, I mean, I guess that's just the language. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But he's English. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. And Broom introduces the colonel to Howard. He talks about how they were sent there from President Truman... 
and he's never familiar with their branch. And Broom says that they're only two years old. They're headquartered at an Air Force base in New Mexico. And so the colonel asks, what are they exactly there to do? Howard says, well, you must be aware that since the fall of Berlin, Allied soldiers have been uncovering some, well, rather ambiguous things. And so as they're raiding all the Nazi stuff, they're finding all these occult objects, right? And so you see, like, somebody in the middle of, like, some sort of circle, right? Like, where maybe some ritual was being done. There's all these... Looks like uh, a, looks like a pentagram. Right. And then there's um, cages where there are dead animals, and there's, like, mummy, sarcophagus, and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, there's a guy taking a picture next to the sarcophagus. Right. It's very... It's- <laughs> And Broom is, he says that they're there to catalog as much data pertaining to the Nazi obsession with the occult as possible. And Howard says, we've been told to carry this out with utmost sensitivity in regards to the Soviets. So Actually, a lot more like uh, Indiana Jones than, than I initially did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It turned out to be very much like Indiana Jones. And you were talking about doing a lot with a little... As Aseta does these little lines a lot. Yeah. We see them over Howard's head right there as he's making that point to be with utmost sensitivity. And it just adds a lot. I think it does a lot for the panels where he includes those little lines. And so I like this team up of Broom and Howard. And I forgot to mention this about the last story. So the last story, you know, it was like um, told from the point of view of Howard talking about Broom Having the supporting character narrate the events is similar to Watson retelling the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. Because he does that a lot, right? Uh-huh. And so kind of uh, Broom is the Sherlock. Oh, super good. And Howard is the Holmes, right? And the colonel says that sensitivity is the word, gentlemen. The Russians just put a hardline marshal in charge here. They've lost a lot of the access to their information in the Soviet sector. And he says the tensions are really high right now. He doesn't want you eggheads stirring things up over uh-huh. a bunch of hoodoo crap. And so Broom's like, look, all we want to do is dig through your files. We're harmless. He tells him, the spy boys at the SSU tell me the Russians have their own occult people here already. And they've already picked through all the stuff. The best I can do is grant you access to some German military expense reports dating back to 37. And so Broom's like, okay, can I meet with the Soviet team? And he says that it's going to take a while for them to establish diplomatic contact. The last thing that Broom asked for is he asked for a team, you know, if you have a small team of administrators or paralegals that he can work with. The colonel says, you know what we've got to spare here in Berlin, Professor? Soldiers. There's his infantry unit, been together since D-Day, only five of them still alive. So these guys have been through a lot, right? And so we're introduced to our team for the issue. We've got Bird Eye Bob, suspected of shooting an unarmed Waffen SSPOW, never proven. Nice. Tim Clark, (laughs) he's a good soldier but loyal to his deadbeat friends to a fault. Sergeant Mays, looking at his file, you'd think the son of a bitch was bulletproof. Private Dickie Ash has an irrational phobia of body armor, so he's not wearing any. He's just in like a t-shirt or whatever. And Private Steiner... Demoted due to narcotics possession. Smoking and he's like, weed. he's kind of got sunglasses or something on. Yeah. And so all these guys throughout the story, you know, they do kind of have their own little personalities. And I like the way as a set of kind of puts kind them of all G.I. apart. Joe thing. Yeah. But yeah. he kind of sets them apart. They all have their own little traits about them. That's one of the points they talked about on hiring him was he was good at differentiating all these guys. And they're not really happy about not being home. 
so they can push yeah. paper for you for a while. Who would be? And so the first thing that Howard, he goes in there and he says, well, you're not going to need any of your firearms. And so they don't like that either. This guy, Dickie Ash, he says, Christ on a crutch. They sent us to assist freaking accountants. Unbelievable. So Broom goes over to Sergeant Mays. He's like, I wonder if you could attempt to inspire your men to help me. And Sergeant Mays is just like, they'll go where you want us to go, stand where you want us to stand. But they already got the best of us, and they ain't getting no more. And then Steiner's like, I brought a flask. <laughs> and well, and he Howard's made a, look on his face. Yeah, the look on Howard's face is good. He made a point to say, um, we did our job, our job is done, kind of a thing. Right, you know? yeah. yeah. Which, to be fair, like, you know... I. It's it's hard to yeah. not no, uh, feel absolutely. for him. <laughs> They're the last five alive of their whole infantry unit. And they were did the D-Day thing, right? Yeah. And so Private Clark comes over and he's like, hey, you're Trevor Broom. Yeah, I was in East Bromwich in December of 44 when the little guy came through. Yeah, so that is so awesome. I like, the, I like it thinking that he's, that, one he of these, there, that he's yeah. one of these guys in the picture here. He's like, these other mugs can't even read Kraut. Sarge speaks enough to pick up a drunk girl at a bar, and that's about it. But I read and write it pretty good. I'll help you. And so the Sarge is like, there you go. Problem solved. So they've got one guy to help him, and they have all these files to go through. And then it cuts to weeks later, and we see Broom. He's leaving the American sector and going into the Russian sector. And so, you know, I assume that they had time to establish that diplomatic contact or whatever, and so he gets there, and they don't want to let him in initially, but then someone from inside says, she knows he's here, she'll see him. And so he goes inside, and we're in this Zeppelin hangar, and so there are all these artifacts in there. And so I want to point out on the bottom left, right next to Broom, this kind of bull statue, that's Moloch. Yeah. That's the real statue oh. of Moloch. And it kind of reminded me of In the Chapel of Moloch, which mm-hmm. the, which was the Hellboy story. But also, coming back to the historical fiction, you know, there were numerous claims of Nazi occultism, from Hitler being possessed by demons to him being controlled by mentalists. Um, the Nazis, there was a rumor that they did try re- to recover the Holy Grail. And uh-uh. that was, you know, we talked about Indiana, and the Indiana of Jones destiny. earlier. There's so yeah, many the like, of destiny. movies and books and shit about that. And so, but I thought this was interesting. Hitler's mentor, Dietrich Eckhart, this is the guy who Hitler dedicates Mein Kampf to. He wrote to a friend in a personal letter in 1923. He wrote, follow Hitler, he will dance. But it is I who have called the tune. We have given him the means of communication with them. Do not mourn for me. I shall have influenced history more than any other German. What the fuck? Yeah, so there is like, you know, there is um, a lot of stuff about, you You can really go down a rabbit hole with all this Nazi occultism. There's a lot of different documentaries, books, articles about it. And there are just so many the different history facets channel's to it. responsible for like half of that too. <laughs> and so Sir Winston Churchill wrote in his memoir, The Gathering Storm, about Hitler and Moloch. He writes, Hitler had conjured up the fearful idol of an all-devouring Moloch, of which he was the priest and incarnation. Yeah, so I thought that that was really interesting. You can read more about that if you want. But we see the statue of Moloch there, so that actually does have some historical significance. And then... uh, I just want to throw out that Winston Churchill is also responsible for uh, numerous atrocities. Okay, back to you, John. Okay. You can also see like a UFO. It looks like there's like... 
Yeah, I was going to ask, is that a UFO that they were covering with that flag? It's like covered oh, with this shit. flag right there, right? I didn't catch right? that. so good. It's and, great. Um, there are all these different kind of like Egyptian statues and Aztec-looking statues. Um, That's super cool. There's just a lot of nice little details in there. And uh, I guess once again, you know, Professor Broom is like very briefly overcome with this awe. This, oh, yeah. This, this sense of like awe about these artifacts and then very quickly kind of returns to the task at hand and yeah well he even tells this guy uh i'm beginning to feel a little out of my league here and then they bring him in this room i present you vavara head of arcane studies and esoteric teachings for the union of soviet socialist republics and there's those little lines those little lines where professor looks over welcome professor broom a pleasant surprise and we reveal this little blonde girl (laughs) (laughs) super cute in a white dress and she's holding a bottle of Stilochnia vodka. Shades of Vasilisa. Yeah, yeah, she she is kind of like Vasilisa. Well, she's a little bit more uh, down to business than Vasilisa, but she's <laughs> <laughs> she's taking shots of vodka over here. No, 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 no. It's just water. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she says I'll be having a little water. But she's just great. And is that she, like a colloquialism, do you I think? I don't know. It might be, yeah. I don't really know much about Russian colloquialism. Yeah. So I don't know. Kind of what I took it as. Right, me too, yeah. <laughs> she greets the professor... She's all like just um, very sunny and bright and cute, like a doll. Yes, but everything that she's excited about are all these horrible things. Like she's like, "Oh, we took it from this minister's office. He hung himself above it." Yeah, you know, I do love a good war. Everybody is so dramatic. Who would voice her if for y'all? Who would like voice her? Yeah, I don't know. I would get Jeremy Irons to do it. Jeremy Irons. To voice Vasilisa, that would be amazing. Not Vasilisa, but... Um, I mean, uh, Vivara. Yeah, Vivara. Yeah. And she has this little dolly, Katya, and she's got her at like at the or, doing the tea party or whatever. She's like, oh, we yeah. suggested tea since an Englishman was coming. As for me, I'll be having a little water, and then she takes a shot. I love this as she like... Uh, Throws that shit back. Yeah, really. It's very cool. Just a, such a cool page to introduce this character. You immediately um, really get a sense of what is yeah. how bizarre this is, but yeah. it really puts it in your head well. I don't, I don't know how else to say that. And so Broom says that they have a monopoly on the documents. It's hindering his job. And so he's trying to see, you know, if they can combine and have a greater understanding of the full danger of the Nazi research. I, mean, I would say Tom Waits, but I don't know if he can do a Russian accent. Right. I think he can. <laughs> I like a really just a very seasoned voice. Yeah. Actor kind of a person. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. And Vivara, she's like, it's not my problem, professor. La, la, la. Spirit of cooperation. How noble you are. You cannot lie to me. I know what you really want. You could have sent others to Berlin. In fact, you almost did. You were torn, reluctant to leave your newly adopted ward all alone in the big American desert. And we see little Hellboy here, right? Little hooves. I love the way he drew little Hellboy. Yeah, he's running around chasing all these chickens. Oh, no. Don't chase the chickens. (laughs) But but he's also, like, smiling like a little kid would, too. Yeah, he's very cute. So I don't don't think he's trying to hurt the chickens. No, 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 no. no. He's just running around in there. And so Vavara knows all this stuff. She knows that the Germans were responsible for Hellboy, and she knows that Broom has Hellboy, and she tells Broom that he's a seeker. Only the promise of secrets revealed could have pulled you away from your little devil. She also says he's worried that it scares him to find out, you know, what she might know about Hellboy. And you're right to be scared. And she asks him why she adopted him in the first place, and 
Broom says that he worries Hellboy would have been dissected or worse, turned over to the church. And she says the church, nasty repulsive, is what that translates to. They are repugnant. 2,000 years of sticking head in sand. Cosmos whirls on without them. And so I kind of like this. Like, I like her. People, yeah. people kind of say, if you ever hear people use that kind of phrasing, they usually say, like, the world turns on without them. Yeah. But she says yeah. the, the cosmos because she's looking at things from a she's grander. She's got a different perspective. You know, yeah. I just really like all that. It's good. She says, I pinky swear, like Western children, to share any information about your Hellboy that my team comes across. And you get the impression that whatever, whoever this person is, right. that they... <laughs> have a fondness for earth culture for for people yes. for culture in general yeah. they have kind of a general fondness and yeah. so that whole like you i pinky swear like western children to share any information like and she's enjoying <laughs> this vodka and she's got her you can tell she's trying things out yeah whatever you know what i mean so it's very don't yeah. you like this desk you know yeah. all this kind of yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, it it really puts you in there it's it's very it's very rich you know, character. Uh, it's just a very interesting fucking character. I, I think it's interesting that you you hear a a male voice right. coming out of this little girl well, because I, mean, I would yeah. think that maybe it would be a like, little girl or even maybe a woman's voice. Sure. Yeah. Who would you cast? I don't know. Well, that's what I was trying to think of, and it's hard to because it would need to be. It would need to have a Russian accent. Yeah. I think. Yeah. The way that they write her, absolutely, it sounds like it's a Russian person speaking English right. as a second language. So you would think it would be like a little girl, or or a woman's a really voice, or a woman's voice. I think, voice but actor. I but I I didn't think a, a man's voice, but I do kind of like that. It also kind of makes me think of Doctor Girlfriend from Venture absolutely, Brothers, right? Yeah. So I I do kind of like that touch. I don't know, after you, um, well, you say like uh, Jeremy Irons right? Tom Waits. Or a, something some, similar. For some reason, I, I don't know why, I just watched that documentary about Elizabeth Holmes on HBO, and all of a sudden oh, I'm like, yeah. maybe something like that with a yeah. Russian accent. Sure. She had that deep voice. Yeah. Who who was who narrated that documentary? Oh, I'm not, I don't know who it was. A guy who narrated. Oh, okay. Uh, but I'm talking about the actual right. the actual woman. Elizabeth. Oh, okay. She has a she has kind of a deep voice, or so, yes, with a <laughs> Russian accent, maybe. Well, I mean, throw it with a Russian accent, but then again, apparently her voice is fake, so I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the the woman who um scam, the scam the scam the sil- lady the Silicon sil- 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 Valley she talked like this yeah. and she gave herself a fake voice yes like wow this. And, um, I kind of okay now can there you were, do, there were now several. can you do that with a Russian accent <laughs> <laughs> no I'm just saying that there was um but that's can you do a Russian I don't know uh, if I do a good Russian accent all of because my idea of a Russian accent comes from people making fun of Russian accents, okay. which I don't think is appropriate. <laughs> like, that would be kind of offensive, I think, to any Russian podcast uh, book club members. Okay. But, uh, you know, so my idea of, like, a Russian accent is all from, like, ridiculous movies and cartoons right. that are kind of probably... Stereotypical. I have no, yeah, over the top, maybe. Yeah. So I have no idea, like, who actually does a good Russian right. accent and who doesn't. Yeah. Is that actually how a Russian person sounds when they're speaking English? Maybe I don't know. Like sure. So um, I know a guy from the Ukraine, but I'm having trouble from remember. Ukraine. Actually, no, I'm I did. Trouble remembering what his voice. I did like. know someone voice. from Ukraine. I did know someone from Ukraine. No, I knew someone from the Ukraine, and she talked like this. She actually did talk like this, and at the end of each sentence, she'd say, "And this is it." <laughs> and she was very friendly and very very tall, 
and actually would uh, tell stories about how she, uh, everyone was forced to be in the army for at least two years. So she was a nurse. She chose to be a nurse and because so, she didn't want to. And but you have to like hold right like guns and stuff like AKs and whatever. And so and she was like, and I hated it. And this was it. And so she would talk about that. But then it was very brief. And she would that was the end of the right, conversation. Right. And so um, I remember thinking like, okay, so what this is actually how someone speaks i'm not being an asshole because that's not super stereotypical because that's actually how you sound i totally forgot i knew this person yeah, too yeah. wow until just now so co-worker i like that see ago. i like that voice that you just did right there yeah. i think that would be very <laughs> cool for the for the character but the last thing i want to mention before we go on from this page is i love how quickly broom has to accept this is what he's working with like he's like oh okay it's it's a little, a little girl. girl but clearly some, not some. <laughs> at all yeah <laughs> if i was gonna go with that i would just go with like try and find a little girl who can say oh, all this stuff yeah because that's that could be an interesting choice too that would be awesome i yeah it, i would either go with a very seasoned old guy who everyone like knows is an amazing has an amazing voice or a little girl and she's actually saying all this stuff. I just think if it was if you're talking live action, yeah. I think the dubbing is a problem. Yeah, it's an issue. I think the yeah. dubbing it, no matter how See, good you are. I was thinking it's are, animated like this style. Okay, if it's animated then I think that would be a nice touch, but if it wasn't animated, right. I also I, I and it was live action, which is what I'm picturing, I think that the dubbing would be a problem. Just get a little girl who's uh, a phenomenal uh, actor. Yeah. No big deal. I don't know. I mean, the dubbing could be a problem if they did it poorly. It has been uh, a problem in the past. So I like our, me, uh, like I've, we're this, our in-depth conversation on this hypothetical situation that well, doesn't even yeah. exist. I mean, I mean, there are movies where um, actors' voices have been dubbed over, and it, it does work seamlessly. But, yeah, I mean, I guess it could be a problem. I guess yeah. it really depends what on movie how was the, it? What movie was it where it was a kid, and they dubbed over the kid's voice with his own fucking voice, and it was terrible somehow? Oh, I don't Very know. creepy and weird. Well, see, that's what I think. I mean, movies always do the voiceovers later yeah. because um, yeah. you can't control the sound. And no, like, of course, uh, of course. Yeah, so but they, it's the A the A and R. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're right. They they do overdub it anyway. Anyway, they'd have to do it well. Yeah. No, nah, uh, they should do a shitty job. <laughs> no, <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Except for this one thing. Anyway. So going on. We cut to Broom, and he's with Howard, and they're looking at these receipts, and Howard's like, Professor, please wake up Clark and take the cot. You've been staring at that same piece of paper for 20 minutes. <laughs> and Broom's like, oh, sorry, I'm just looking at this weird receipt about liquid nitrogen that was delivered to this place for some reason. And so he tells Howard that it was a psychiatric asylum. I suppose that is a little strange, Howard says. So then we see Broom. He's trying to get more information about it, and this lady tells him that it was abandoned in 39. Yes, sir, the patients were put to death as part of Action T4. And so I read about this. T4 was really horrible. German physicians were authorized to select patients deemed incurably sick after most critical medical examination and administer to them a mercy death. So they killed, you know hundreds of thousands of people who were in psychiatric and mental asylums with this action t4 wait did you say mercy death that's what that's what they called it yeah that's what they called it right but it's really genocide oh yeah they oh, use yeah. they use the same techniques that they were using in the concentration right. yeah because she, yeah she says here the patients were put as part of this thing 
And same technology we found in the camps. Yeah. Wow. And it's bone chilling when you, because that's how someone would tell someone else something, because right. that's you're living through this. Yeah. It's like, oh, they found it in the in the fucking camps. Did you hear about that shit? Like, it's yeah, it's very chilling. We cut to Clark waking up, and they're gone. There's a little note there that says, "Be back this afternoon. Keep digging." So we cut to Broom and Howard, and they get to this psychiatric facility, and Howard says, "It's certainly fit for Lugosi." Broom says he's just sick of looking at paperwork. So they they go inside to check it out, and immediately Howard's cold in there, which is like they say that that's a right that's a, thing. A, a sign yeah. that some place is haunted. And again, I mean, as a set, I was doing so much cool work here with these characters and with all the setting. I just think that it really kind of puts you in this 1940s historical supernatural space. This little creepy detail as they're going up the stairs, there's these angels drawn. I wonder if that's like actual imagery from World War II. I wonder if there's like something historical in there. As they're walking through, as Aseta does these really cool like little horror ghost things. Like something's there in the background and then it's not there. You know, so there's a really cool one down here on the bottom as Howard is looking on and there's this That's kind the of, kind of thing that really fucking yeah. fucks me up and freaks me out in the movie. And Howard's like, oh God, that's how I would be right, going into one of these haunted places. And then they find this room. And again, there's those little lines that as a set of puts over the characters. This looks like this is the room that we saw in the beginning of the story where they were trying to get that woman mm. who was a vampire. And they yeah. even put Filardi colors these panels at the bottom red. So that kind of puts us. It indicates us of that, that yeah. people were tortured. Here. Yeah. This place is horrible. It's even colder in here. And then behind Howard, there's another one of these little scary guys. Their faces are all kind of like melty, right, or something. And so they go to find the administration office, and it's stripped bare. There's some old blueprints. And so Howard mentions that there's a basement that they missed. And again, as they're looking around and everything, there's like this creepy figure in the corner. And they didn't bring a flashlight, so they enter this really dark area. Don't know how much good it would have done. There's nothing down here to see. And then behind them, there's all these like scary faces uh. and everything. It just really ramps up the tension. And then that's how that issue ends. I just want to take a yeah. little quick pause here. So when I heard about this BPRD 1946, I was kind of like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to read that. You know what I mean? I was like, you know... Now they want us to get this other title. You know, I don't know if I want to get another book. Like, I went through all these things in my head. Yeah. On, I was a little skeptical on this book. And we then, all knew you were going to get that book. And then, of course, I bought it anyway. And then issue one came out, and I read this issue. So this is the end of the first issue. And then I read this issue like <laughs> five or six times. I was I became obsessed with this book, with, with this specific trade as each issue would come out, I just remember really anticipating it and really just immediately falling in love with this series. And well, then, you said to me, uh, but when we started this, this is actually one of your favorite yes, stories. Yes, this is one of my favorite stories. Awesome. But, you know, it, at at first I was very skeptical. And then, you know, I didn't really know Azaceta either. I had never really seen his art. So just this first issue, I just loved everything about it. I just love this dynamic with broom and with howard i love the setting all the historical fiction taking place and then vivara is just awesome just yeah. one of the best characters um i can understand your apprehension i mean there have been things that came out recent or i guess right before this day that soured my, soured my opinions of prequels right <laughs> you know, so you know when you hear oh it's a prequel right exactly yeah, yeah and a, a si- another side book and 
you know, um, but of course it's great. And this cover to issue two, this is one of my all time favorite Mignola covers. Like, yeah, I, I, yeah. This is this, this is, is one definitely of the best in my covers. top five. And I just really love this. And we were talking about this a little earlier in the artist edition. I believe the artist edition for Hellboy in Hell, it has the Mignola pencils for this. I would put this in the top five as well. I think this is one of his greatest covers of all time. It's just in- fucking incredible. The art is amazing. Is that a bird on his arm? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, his all the little um, the design little... on their robes or on their cloaks or whatever is really impressive. And I just love Vivara. I yeah. just really love that character. It's the good to have her on the cover. Yeah, it's just a brilliant cover. It's fucking gorgeous. It's yeah, it's one of my favorites. It's incredible. Oh, and we talked a little bit about this before too. Was in the sketchbook for this, you can kind of see as Aseta designed these monsters, these demon forms based on feedback from Mignola. So like at first. Um, one of them was a bear, I think, too. It mentions that they were summoned by Mongolians. So at first they had kind of like that kind of look, but Mignola wanted to stay away from any kind of culture. So as Aseta said, he referenced a lot of the sketchbook from Right Hand of Doom where Mignola drew a lot of the yeah, demons really um, to get these designs. So yeah. And then so Mignola took his designs and, and did his version of it for these covers. So in the daylight now... Broom and Howard are there, um, still in this psychiatric ward, and they hear the goat. These ghosts are saying the waters here are warmer, and we see that a couple times. And Howard gets scared. Somebody behind him, but it's Sergeant Mays and the rest of the soldiers. They shine this flashlight on it. I love this panel where Broom's like, "Please remove that light from my eyes." (laughs) 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 And so you know they're all there, and Sergeant Mays he tells Broom. We want out, but not court-martialed out. Your responsibility, don't run off again. So once they realized that they were gone, they they went to go get them. And Howard's like, I could use a beer, Professor, if we're done here. And so Broom is like, I suppose. We cut to them 70 kilometers outside of Berlin, and they're at this bar. They're bragging on this guy, Bird Eye, about killing that kraut that he was guarding. That was mentioned when he was introduced. Sergeant Mays, he comes over to Broom, and he tells him, been watching you put him away. You really can hold your poison. I'm impressed. And Broom says, I've a range of talents, Sergeant. Nice. <laughs> I really like that line. <laughs> uh, but it makes sense that they would end up bonding over, you know, something like drinking beers or right. you know, whatever. Yeah. The Sergeant, he tells him that it seemed like he didn't want to leave that creepy place. And Broom says, well, after this, we have to go back to a warehouse full of purchase orders. And he asks Mays what he did before he was a soldier. And Mays says he was a public defender. And they have this conversation here where he says he was defending the largest call girl population. And Broom says, ah, the devil's advocate. Well, if given the choice, I'd much rather defend the devil. It's true, Sergeant Mays says. So then we have this panel where they show Hellboy. You know, and Broom is thinking of him and he says, yes, I know what you mean in terms of defending the devil. And so Mays confesses, he says that they were really hard on Broom. We've seen a lot and we're tired. And Broom's like, you don't have to explain yourself. And just then Howard comes up and he's like, you've got to hear what the bar owner has to say. And so they go over to the bar owner and he's telling them, look, you know, I'm betraying someone's trust by telling you this. But there was this boy who was in scene before the war And then now he's like, he's alive, but he looks all weird, right? His mother's hiding him. Maybe you can help them. And Broom's immediately like, yes, I can help them. Yes, yes, I can. I love that look on his face, too. Yeah. 
he's very confident to take this on and it just ends horribly it's just anyway we'll talk more about this scene but beautiful work by Azaceta and Filardi on this next page I really like how the sun's coming up there's those lines again and the colors are really well done well and not just the colors which they are really well done but um this artist has their own incredible set of uh, brushes that I assume are custom and the textures that you get just like in things like light coming through a window or on the side of a barn or a townhouse or just little things like that. There's just so much texture and there's so much um, character. Everything's given a lot of character. Yeah. And this woman comes out. This is Hilda. And she just starts immediately shooting at the guys. And she's like, leave us alone. And the bartender, he's there and he's like, please, you know, they came to see Aldo. They're trying to help. She's like, you brought them here to my home? And he's like, they're going to help him, you know? And she's like, I've seen how men with guns fix things. They hear this loud noise coming from the barn, this like kind of screaming. So they head over there. And again, the bartender's like, look, this guy's smart. He's a professor. And the woman says, my son is all I've left from this war. And I didn't even know I had that until a week ago. Since I was a young mother, he's been in the hospital. I got a letter some time back telling me he had passed from medical complications. Then suddenly he showed up, frightened, lost, different, but no less my son, I beg you. Please don't take from me what little of my world remains. And we reveal Aldo, right? Aldo? Horrible scene. Uh, He's like, I don't know how to describe this. He's like this emaciated little weird. He's kind of withered, but he's got an enlarged cranium and he's got little tiny weird eyes and... And there's all these dead pigs. Did he, like, eat them or something? Or were they already dead? I don't know. Because they look kind of, like, all skinny or whatever. Like, their ribs are showing. They probably were, but he's probably still ate them. Yeah. Yeah. And so the professor's like, can you understand me? And he just says, cold. Cold coming back, climbing back. Hurt nobody. Hurt nobody. Why so cold? The waters here are cold. Because they, anyway, we'll we'll talk about that later. Then when he sees the soldier, you know, one of these soldiers with their guns, he immediately kind of turns into this monster vampire version. And he says, no soldiers. And so I think that this is Dickie. He just starts shooting at him. And then this monster that Aldo turns into just bites him on the neck. And they all start shooting. It turns into this whole thing. This woman, Hulda, she's like, I knew you came to kill him. And so they take her gun away as all this shit is going down. So it immediately goes south. For God's sakes, get out of the barn, Broom says. And so they all go out there and they shut the doors on it. I really like these top two panels yeah. where that happens. That's like, um, yeah, it's just, really... it, yeah, it just really captures that kinetic, you know, moment right there. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, we left Dickie in there. And they're like, no, that thing was sucking the blood out of him. Dickie's bought it. That's it. He's done. And Steiner, he's like, God damn it, I'm still drunk. <laughs> and so down here at the bottom, Hulda's singing to Aldo from through the door. And she's singing this German nursery rhyme, Schlaf, Kindlein, Schlaf. Schlaf, Kindlein, Schlaf. And so they turn around and now the Russians are there too. Now the Russian soldiers are there and they tell them to put their guns down. Christ, it's the Ivans, they say. And then here comes Vivara. She comes out. She's got her little doll Katya with her. 
and she's like, Mr. Remember Me, Mr. Wanna Kiss Me? I was trying to look for a reference if that was like a song or something, but I couldn't find anything about that. And Vavara, she says, thank you for leading us here, Professor. I knew you'd be useful. And he's like, you followed me? And so she just gives him the doll. She's like, watch after my doll. She is very naughty. I love all that. She's like, I want to go into the barn. And both the old woman and Howard are like, no, you can't let, it's not safe for her to go in there. Broom says to let her pass. I do not have to tell you to close door behind me now, do I, Howard? Vavara tells him. And he's like, no. So then she goes in there and they shut the thing behind her. And then after a while, they hear, no, no, don't hurt me, no. And the sergeant is like, what's going on in there? And Broom tells him, there are monsters in the world, sergeant, and I'm afraid we'd stumbled onto one. And then after a little bit, Vavara comes out, and her arm is all covered with blood, right? She says, there is a sealed-off chamber of asylum basement, hidden. That is where he was kept in cold. He escaped to surface through drain pipe. That is all I could get from him before accident. And Broom rushes in there, and he's been, like, all torn apart, right? Yeah, he's been fucked up. That's <laughs> crazy. And so Hulda sees this. She immediately starts, why? Why'd you do this? And we see on Otto's arm, it says 112. Number 112, Broom says. Seems there are others. Many others, Vivara says. And so Broom starts putting it together. They were frozen in the liquid nitrogen and they're thawing out. And he tells the sergeant that he's sorry about Dickie, but they need to go to the asylum now while we have Russian firepower on our side. And so the sergeant isn't really happy about that, but they go anyway. And on the next scene, they have to shoot Dickie too. So he got turned into a vampire, right? After that thing yeah. bit him. Yeah. So they have to they have to kill him too. And it's this horrible scene as all the soldiers have to, like, kill their own guy. And then Vivara's like, oh, it's going to be such good fun. Come quickly. Gather your men. I want you to ride with me, Professor. And so throughout this whole thing, Vivara, you know, she just has no emotion for any of this stuff. Her emotion seems to be very jolly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. She's uh, she's not sensitive. She doesn't have to... the appropriate emotion. There you there, go. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And then this Russian guy comes over with a flamethrower and they burn the whole thing. The woman held a, she's like, I trusted you, professor. I trusted you. And Vivara just says, hurry, professor. There's nothing more to do here. And this is one of these moments where I was just like, this really sucks, right? For Broom. Like imagine, yeah. you know, all these people have been through so much following the war, including these women. She lost her son and all this stuff. And then now, on top of this, like, her friend brought these guys there to help him. Uh, he's a doctor. He's a Terrible. professor. They're going to help him. And then they killed him. And not only that, now they're burning her whole barn down. And it's just kind of like, he told that bartender that they could help. Yeah. You know? And then here they are just leaving onto the next thing, leaving this chaos behind them. So, back in the car... Vavar is enjoying this whole thing, and the professor... He's having a good old time. Yeah, he's like, I need answers. You can't keep me in the dark if you want to keep working with me. And so she says, okay, you know, we've pieced together something from uncovered documents. Winter two years ago, Hitler arranged historic meeting at Wellesburg Castle. And so we talked about Wellesburg Castle on our Wake the Devil episode. And he was meeting with Count Vladimir Jurescu, right? So Jurescu was the vampire from Wake the Devil. He was also a big disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> but Hecate ruled. And uh, and Broom is like, uh, he starts putting it together, you know, Hitler must have been trying to build an army of vampires. They called the project Vampir Sturm. 
And so this is a reference to the actual Nazi project called Volkssturm, which was where they made all these militias out of the public. It was Himmler's idea, and Hitler found it most exciting. How I wish I had been there to see dictators stare into fathomless depths of the Count's eyes. Imagine it, the Count must have raided such power and darkness as to make Hitler seem like a child. And I really like all this, and we see Jurescu with his black Brunswickers outfit. And so Hitler, you know, I guess he decided that the creatures were absolutely uncontrollable. And so later, Hitler had Jurescu and his six vampire wives destroyed. And we also read about that detail in the Wake the Devil episode. But the weakest one, Anna, she was taken prisoner and the blood was drained of her before being incinerated. This panel, I don't know where this is done, where the blood is filling up this uh, this thing is like, yeah, it's just really well done. And it's just like uh, really kind of creeped me out when I saw that. So this is a vampire at the beginning, right? Yeah, this is yeah. flashing back to that story at the beginning of issue one. And so Vavara says that's where their trail ends. They're trying to figure out what happened to that blood. But that creature in the barn is evidence that Vampire Sturm came to pass after all, in basement of abandoned asylum. Exciting, no, she says. And Professor's like, who are you? And she's like, I'll tell you my favorite story. Once there was Wisp of Tsar named Peter. He stood against Swedish to his west and Cossacks who called him Antichrist inside heart of his own country. Peter's great nation could not reach sea, so he desired Swedish land. But he had been routed by Swedes at the Battle of Narva, and Cossack rebels constantly nipped at his heels. His advisors turned to old knowledge in search of certain victory. And so all of this is a reference to Peter the Great. He ruled the Tsardom of Russia and later the Russian Empire from 1682 until his death in 1725. And he really did a lot to expand the Russian Empire to become a major European power. He led cultural revolutions, that replaced some of the traditional and medieval socio and political systems. And he was known for founding and developing the city of St. Petersburg, of which he's named. This war that they're talking about is a reference to the Great Northern War. Um, wow. I thought that I had a... Cool. That was a, a battle that actually did exist. And she talks about this battle at Narva. Peter was defeated there, but then they came back to win later. And she says that they employed all these like esoteric knowledges, right? They studied enchantment songs of the Kievan Rus. Were, yeah, this is a really was, cool page. I like them yeah. talking about all these different... I thought it was Kievan Rus. Kievan Rus, yeah. The Kievan Rus was a loose federation of East Slavic and Finnish peoples in Europe from the late 9th to the mid-13th century. She says dream journeys of Ukrainian seers bone casting of siberian shamans and bone casting that's where you throw the bones right and things are revealed that way and subtleties of belarusian cooking magic and so i couldn't find anything regarding belarusian cooking magic but there is kitchen magic and kitchen magic is, yeah, there is. Um, where people they use uh, certain herbs and spices in their cooking and there's like an intent there's an altar builder out of hearth and recipes are imbued with like will and meaning you know and it's supposed to enact magic that way so i like all these different references and like you said beautiful page by azaceta as he's describing all these things and finally in some mongolian tomb they found what they sought a demon trinity who had aided the Asians in battle for as long as men had placed faith in dark behind stars. 
three beasts were summoned, and though they only watched, it was under their gaze that Wipsar took all he desired. And where they show these demons in the Mongolian tome, they're like in that hear no evil, yeah. see no evil, speak no evil motif. Yeah. And so when the war was over, they came to collect their prize from Peter. For as you know, Professor, every bridge has toll. The first demon took all of Peter's future sons so that his name could not live on. The second demon took Peter's heart so cruelty would command his hand and pain would be brought to all who came in contact with him. But the third demon, who was meant to take Peter's soul, the third demon walked amongst glistening meat of battlefield and witnessed great poetry and world. So it went that third demon chose to stay, abandoning his bounty, which was also his passage home. For many years, demon wearing ever-changing face has walked earth, and in time came even to dream as humanity dreams. Is nice story, you think? <laughs> and I love yeah. as a setup the way he draws Broom's expression yeah. right here. Yeah. You know, Broom definitely understands this, and you've got some Broom hair going on today, John. Oh, do I? Yeah. And also to hammer the point home, when we see the demon, their eyes the have like this yeah. line in it, and well, then it's we- a goat eye. Oh, okay, Which is yeah. Beautiful. And then when we cut over to Vavara, she's got those eyes yeah. too, right? Oh, so I also love the I panel. I actually didn't catch that. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, it's super good. And it, and obvi- and on the the page where you reveal that it's she's got the same eyes, um, that's the only thing on that entire page that has that much color in it is the yeah, eyes. Yeah, really you're cool. right. Kind of a holdover right. from the page before, but on that page before, the panel in the upper right where they're all taking their toll, they're all kind of collecting their right. their price or whatever they uh you know you can see the action happening like of them holding out their hand and then that little flame appears right and that's the thing that's the exchange yes. there and that's interesting i just thought i found that very i like N- that a lot no but to linger on that a little longer i really like you you do see the moment here because they're focused on Peter, but the third one is looking yeah, at the battlefield. Looking away, yeah. The third one is not looking at Peter, and then it walks off from the rest of them. The two are here, and this one just kind of goes off, and it's just looking at everything. And so, yeah, really it's really well done. And um, so that's the passage back. And so instead of taking that, she, yeah, she was yeah. like, "I'm gonna hang out here for a while." There's poetry here. It's really yeah. interesting, and so. I'm going to get into all the different kinds of vodkas and furniture that you have. And And hang out at all the different wars and watch all the bloody conversations. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's that aspect that Vivara is fascinated with. You know what I mean? The glistening meat of the battlefield, she says. Humanity's um, ability to be more evil than monsters. Yes. Yes. I like how she also refers to came to even to dream as humanity dreams yeah it's yeah. really interesting and so when i read that i instantly thought of hellboy you know yeah hellboy is quote unquote i guess a demon beast of apocalypse yeah like but i mean he dreams as a he dreams as a person right yeah, yeah. no good point when the beast of the apocalypse is a better person than most people yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they arrive back at the asylum and that's it. Uh, chapter three. So this cover of chapter three is pretty amazing. Ah, so good, this owl. Yeah. You can see the hands down here have the numbers on them. So we open to this brutal scene in 1945. It's fucked up. Yeah, this um, starved prisoner is being shot by this German officer. And he says, look at it this way, mongrel. At least you didn't end up in the vats. For what it's worth, the waters here are warmer. 
And so that's something that we keep hearing in the haunted yeah. ghosts, right? In the haunted hospital. And there's a mass grave, a bunch of uh, victims here. Yeah. It, it's horrible. Really and in there, we do see like a, a mother and a baby. Of, yeah. 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 So they get to the place and they're not feeling too good about this, Sarge. The Sarge says, you know, if we run into even five of those things, like the one that was in the barn, we're done for. Professor Broom's like, I understand. And then Vivar comes up. She's look, she's like, look, my sergeant. She shows the the doll and she says, "'Tis now the very witching time of night when churchyards yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. Now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day would quake to look on. And Howard says, I'm beginning to dislike that child, Trevor. <laughs> But this phrase here are from Shakespeare's Hamlet, Act 3. And this is when Hamlet is, he's getting ready for action. He's going to get revenge and kill Claudius. Another example of how this particular demon has really taken to yeah. various aspects of, of human culture and you right. know, creativity and like is reading Shakespeare and is has a real affinity for for things like that. Yeah. You know, while you were saying that, it made me think of like, why this little girl? And maybe it's because they have this childlike wonder about yeah, humanity absolutely. and about yeah. the world, you know. And so what better form to experience that? And Howard mentions the blueprints that he saw earlier. Is they should be able to find this chamber on the west side of the basement. And as they go up there, um, one of these Russian soldiers is talking to the other, Boris, and he's telling him what he's going to do when he gets home. And then he turns around and the guy's not there. And so they all start seeing this ghost, right? It looks like... So on this top panel, this Russian soldier, he like falls backwards off the staircase. But is it like he's the only one seeing it? it right? Because in the it, first it and the third way. panel, they're not there in just the second one. On the bottom, we we hear the yeah, waters here the only warmer. And that. he's being swarmed by all these things. And he's looking up and seeing these angels. Again, we keep coming back to that detail of those angels that were drawn on the staircase. So uh, Vavara, she tells one of the Russian soldiers to stay behind. And then Sergeant May is like, we're not going to let some Ivan watch our back. Steiner, you're staying with him. And so Steiner stays back too. And they go and they find this fake wall. They pry it open. And Steiner, he's talking to this Russian soldier. And he turns around and he's like, what am I boring you? The hell you and your commie friends talk about. You don't even know what I'm saying, do you? And behind him, you can see all those creepy ghost things crawling up the wall. Mm -hmm. And then from with all the soldiers, they just hear gunfire. They send one of the guys up there to see what the commotion is. And it's Steiner. And he's just shooting and saying, get away from me. And he's uh, just shooting at what he thinks is the demons, but he's hitting the Russian soldiers down at the bottom. Yeah. Right? And they're telling him to stop shooting. And he's like, oh, my God, it's not the things from the barn. It's something else. We got to get out of here. And he starts just freaking out and running around. They're like, it's us, you crazy bastard. So down below, Sergeant Mays, he's like, everything, all hell's breaking loose. And so he gives uh, Professor Broom a gun. And Sergeant Mays says, we're getting out of here. We'll reassess the situation outside. And so they're getting ready to go outside. And then there's this panel right here. I love this where Vivara and Broom have this. They look at each other. They have this like kind of glance where she's yeah. like, I'm going in there. You know what I mean? And so Broom goes in there with her. So now they're getting separated from everybody else. So we're seeing this Russian soldier. There's just seeing all these ghosts everywhere. There's the ghost of that woman and the baby that we saw in that pit. Right. And Steiner He's running off all crazy, and he goes into that room where all those experiments were done. 
back with the professor and Vivara. Now they've gone through that wall and they've found this factory. There's all these, what are they, like giant vats? I don't know. What well, yeah, that was, I think that's vats. the vats that they were referencing earlier. Hey, at least it wasn't the, you weren't in the vats. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. Exactly. So they find the vats where they're doing all these experiments and they, and Vivara finds the files. Subjective analysis and outcome of blood grafting on first test subjects. I can't believe this, Broom says, as he's reading all this. Blood grafting. What is, is that a real thing? Blood grafting? I guess you're replacing someone's blood with a different blood. Oh, okay, with the vampire blood? I don't know. Nine hand-picked members, SS Insurgency Division, codename Werewolf. Five test subjects died, survivors found to be uncontrollable. Alternate plan proposed. So the professor's reading all this, and Vivara mentions that in her research, she's finding that one of the asylums still has patients in it. They kept one asylum full so they could pull people out of there and do experiments. And we get all these flashbacks, and these are just horrible, right? Um, a lot of these conditions really did exist. And we also show them experimenting on this guy. And so it's cutting back and forth between all these horrible things that were done in the past. And then the team in the present, they're running across all these ghosts of these inmates. And we see Steiner in that experiment room. All these ghosts are coming around him. And yeah, they always have like these, like their faces are all melted and they're kind of, their skin is hanging off. It's really a gruesome, just really kind of horrific effect. Last year, 120 strongest were chosen, all others executed, buried in mass grave behind asylum. As one of these soldiers outside, he sees this ghost of this woman with the baby. Above it, there's this giant owl coming down. What kind of owl is that? Well, it looks like a snow owl. And so we see Steiner. He's getting all experimented on, right? He's getting all like tortured by the ghosts or whatever because he's in that experiment room. And all the guards are just shooting and everything's going crazy. And then one of them gets Howard and it like impales him on this piece of like rebar or something. Yeah. That is so horrible. I remember reading this. I was like, dang, they're already getting rid of this yeah, guy. Man. It's kind of like uh, we were like, talking about Holmes and Watson. Well, yeah. Watson bites it in the first Freaking story or whatever. Yeah, I was like, I was enjoying Howard. And all of a sudden I'm like, poor Howard. Yeah. Yeah, he was a good guy. Oh, and he believed in Broom as well. Yeah, he really did. With Broom and Vavara, they're figuring out what happened here with all these containers. They must have been frozen before they could fully transform. But there's only 20 containers there. 100 are missing. And so Broom is figuring all this out. When the 100 were moved, the freezing system was damaged, and these 20 were left behind, and they're starting to thaw, and that's how Aldo got out. If whoever's taken them knows how to thaw them properly... Jurescu's children, Broom and Vavara, hear a voice and they turn around and they see this guy, Baron Koenig. What did you think of this weird character? Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, he's like this vampire guy. So Koenig is talking to Broom and he's telling him, you know, he knows everything about Jurescu and this vampire project. And he's really trying to intimidate Broom, right? He kind of grabs him with his clawed hand. He's got like rings on all his fingers. He's a really cool looking character. And he grabs Broom and he tells him about how Anna suffered. You know, she was violated. All her blood was drained to breed this project. I like when he says to breed this, he just throws the papers down. Right. He's like, to breed this. You He's can... a very dramatic gentleman. He really yeah. is. It's like you can actually kind of hear like the paper ruffling yeah, yeah, as yeah. it falls to the floor. 
Well, the kind of guy, any any guy that would turn into an owl, I think, yeah. is be a, in general, pretty yeah. dramatic character. And Broom kind of falls back. He says, "Tell me, who are the true Medmen, Professor? The pathetic creatures who haunt this place, or those who did this? I was too late to stop this, but men will pay for it. All men." And he kind of reaches out for Broom, and then Vivara intervenes. Enough! And there's this like all red panel. You know, there's like this kind of power coming from her. And then we have this awesome panel at the top where oh, she's so like good. projecting this demon from behind her. And the voice is coming from the demon, right? It's well, so coming. I guess it's really the demon and the projection is the little girl. Right. Yeah. Know. And she's got the flame over yeah, her head Yeah, it's too. super good. Yeah, she's got the flame over her head. This human is under my protection. Touch him, his companions, or any of my people, and you will suffer. And Koenig's immediately like, my lord. Yeah, he gets down all... on his knees and everything. Right. The hundred missing containers, where are they? Who took them? And he says, I have no idea. They were moved before I arrived. Then go. If you are wise, your path will never cross mine again. And she's back into the little girl form again. Okay, so I didn't catch the thing with the eyes when I was reading this earlier. And so... Uh, as I was reading this story, I was going, man, I really like this character, Vivara. Yeah. And I was just like, man, I'm really enjoying this. And then like, I turned the page, and she's the demon. And I was just like, I really like this <laughs> oh, character. Oh, that was the reveal to you. Yeah. That was yeah. Really, okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. If you didn't, yeah, If you didn't catch that little detail earlier, they would have still revealed that to you. But I also love this panel at the bottom as Koenig is turning back yeah, into the, the owl. owl. You can yeah. kind of see, like... Because he was in the coat and the, he's got like feathers yeah. instead of arms. Yeah. And then I like the little detail of the eye. Yeah. Really cool transformation the way they did that. And Broom is just left fascinating. <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> I love this um, panel as the owl's flying out. But as the owl's flying out, we also see Steiner dead on the experiment thing with all these things sticking out of him. And the owl flying away also transitions us back to the the guys yeah it goes outside and we see other soldiers and this panel in the middle where it shows the outside of the asylum from the windows and you can see all those ghosts in there and then it has it zooms in on the ghosts all pressed up against the windows just so creepy it's just really uh as i said it really does this horror stuff well broom and vivara exit out of the asylum and this is just a really amazing page vivara kind of guides broom through there and they all part i really like that but we can also see that they're, you know, very emaciated. They're clearly all the tortured victims of this psychiatric hospital. And then Broom comes across Howard. So after, the, you know, first that horrible thing happened with the German lady. And then now this Howard's dead too. But Vivara's like, he cannot be helped, Professor. Yeah, but that's awful. They go outside and Sergeant Mays is pretty pissed off about the whole thing. He's like, where the hell were you? It's going to be full sunrise in about 40 minutes. I want to go back in and look for the others come dawn. But Vivara says, all are dead. No thing living walks halls of asylum now, Sergeant. And so Broom and the Sergeant, they just share this moment where they just look at each other. And the Sergeant's like, I certainly hope those scraps of paper were worth it. So that makes it even worse, too, on top of it. It's just like kind of like makes me really feel bad for Broom. He lost his friend. And just um, all these people are getting killed trying to figure this out. But he's seen the broader picture of all this, right? And we end on one of the Russian soldiers is dead outside and we can see that his neck has been bitten. Chapter 4. We open up on Zeppelin Hangar A4, field base of operations for the USSR's Office of Arcane Studies and Esoteric Teachings in Occupied Berlin. And so we always have where we are introducing 
the BPRD headquarters. And I just think this is funny that it's like the it's yeah. it's just the other way around. And we see that these Russian guards are getting these prisoners. They get this one prisoner out of there. Tensions are high. You know, the soldiers are thinking about because Steiner was shooting at the Russian guys. So they're like already worried that the Russians are talking shit about them. And Sergeant Mays is like, you know, just just be calm. We don't we don't want any more trouble. Well, and plus they're transporting like this important Nazi guy right through the yeah. hallway. So now everyone's also it's the added tension of them. You know, of course you're gonna be like you Nazi fuck you right. fucking yeah, and they're all yelling you fucking fascist, yeah. you know, and all yeah. this shit. And so they're yeah, I mean, like you do. Well, I mean, it's it's like they have all the tension, and you like bust out Nazi bastard, and the Russians says, right. Everybody hates these guys when <laughs> and they should. And Broom, he's like, I can't believe you're holding secret prisoners, Vivara. It's unacceptable. Little Dolly Katya thinks your ethical sensitivity is silly. Right and wrong is for children's stories, Professor, she says. And she has a point, you know, she's <clears throat> saying uh, the, the men we hold are involved in Nazi paranormal experiments. They're, they're as much a part of our collection as artifacts right. the, that they have in the main hangar. So, uh, you know, where where would you be if we if we didn't keep them? Right. Honestly, like... And this guy, he comes in and he's like, are you going to kill me? And Broom's like, why would we kill you? And he's like, when prisoners come to child to see her, they do not return in their cages. And the look that she gives. Yeah, she turns back and looks at Broom like, little me? Yeah. And so Broom, he has this note. This is one of the papers that Baron Koenig threw at him. This note was found hours ago with other documents kept in the basement. And it's signed by this guy. His name is Manstein. And he asked for a cigarette. You know, but Vivara says, no, tell us everything you know about the vampire sturm. You know, this guy's kind of stalling her. He's like, do you think there should be some recording device for history? And she's like, it's simple fascist. You tell us what you know or, and <laughs> Broom, he just intervenes. He's like, Vivara, word outside. He takes her outside. He's like, calm down. I need to talk to this guy alone. I like that right. even a, a demon from another dimension is like, <laughs> shut the fuck up, you fucking fascist. Yeah. <laughs> tell us what the fuck you know. Nazis are so bad, even demons right. fed up with your shit. <laughs> Vavara's like, you're going to make it boring again, Professor. She's like, let me interrogate him. You're welcome to watch, but you might want to wear an apron. Things could get messy. And he's like, I'm begging you, let me handle this, please. And there's this panel where she just kind of pouts at him, right? She's like, <laughs> I wanted to interrogate the fascists. And she's like, fine. And then so he calls Clark over to come take notes. She's sticking her tongue out at him. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so they go in there and they're talking to this guy, Manstein, and he's telling them about this project, 120 of them, and they show them lowering these guys into the vats. He's saying, uh, I was there when they injected them. Right. And so he was explaining uh, that they had to freeze them immediately before they could change because it was just a couple of moments from when they inject them to when they change that they're and they're totally uncontrollable and all this stuff. And so, you know, Broom is asking him like, why, why were they doing this? And he was like, well, you know, we could see the end. Germany was failing and Hitler, uh, even though he was self-deluded, he, even he could see the end coming and all this stuff. And so when it became obvious that there would be no vampire army turning the tide, he's, he was like, well, we're going to just set them all fucking loose. Right. The final option. Fuck it. Yeah. And so the verbal order was given to this guy that in the event of the fall of the Reich or whatever, that the mutant vampires were just going to be unleashed on the whole world. Hitler's thinking in the story is, the German people have let me down, and if we are as a people too weak to lead, then no man deserves to live. Right. So if 
you know, he's built up this idea like, oh, Germany and, and Germans are, well, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, yeah, very right. specific type of German, right. are the best people on the planet. And if if they're not good enough, then no one is going to, like, so it's just this very fucked up weird. Yeah. Yeah, kind yeah. of a thing that, um, so, but is this, um, and then someone here in the foreground has a, a bullet in there? In their yeah, is that, so. Is that Ava? Was yeah, I, I was thinking. I was thinking that because of, I think wasn't she? Didn't she poison herself? Yeah. So I, I was reading about that. Is this she, in the bunker though, where we are right now? I'm sorry. There's yeah. all these scenes oh, here. Oh shit! It looks this like is, they're uh, in the bunker. It said it was April 30th, and that's the day he died. That's the yeah. So the I've I've watched so many fucking yeah. History Channel things about him. Right. So they're they're in the bunker here, and he's calling him in, and uh, the coloring and and the mood is very like. You know, it's that extra creep factor of yeah. like, oh, the last days in the bunker with yeah. Hitler. And it's just a very, they do a good job of setting that tone and that mood of like, this is it, you know, the final plans and all this shit. And it's just a very fucked up. The whole thing like uh, was that she poisoned uh, herself. She bit a cyanide capsule. She bit a cyanide capsule. And then a and little bit later, himself. he shot himself. Yeah. Well, yeah, but then, this, uh, is this is a different, different version. Yeah, yeah different where she's been shot. He's, he's still alive. She took the capsule, but didn't he, he shoot her as well? Oh, did he? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I, I, my, my brain is foggy on this one right now. But I also know, like, like their bodies were, um, uh, they were taken by a German soldier and taken out to the yard and burned because they keep the Russians from getting his body. And then and they were those were, his body through the streets well, of Russia. And though, but those remains were exhumed and then moved because there was a whole thing about it. And then something else happened to them. And so huh. then they were exhumed again and moved to this other thing. Well, I mean, and then they were totally obliterated and completely destroyed and like scattered somewhere apparently. But then like now there's all these like weird conspiracy theories about the final remains of Hitler are actually somewhere else for these like occult purposes. And it's like this whole fucking weird wow. thing. This guy, Manstein, he goes wherever this psychiatric hospital is and he's trying to get in there. I'm on official business. I have documents of passage in my pocket. They let him go through and then they get immediately shot, right? These guys are like, how Hitler? And then they immediately get shot by these other guys, right? Probably Russians. Yeah, the Russians. Well, come he says Rusky, right? Yeah. So then he, he gets to the psychiatric hospital and the driver says, should I wait for you, General? And he's like, no, Captain, drive as fast as you can away from Berlin. Then abandon that uniform and do the best you can to stay alive. And the guy's like, yes, sir. And so he goes in there and they have all the vats with all the different vampires in there. And there's a guy guarding that, too. And so Manstein says... It was not the first time I'd seen them all together like that, you understand? But now something was different, or perhaps something was different in me. It was that moment that clarity struck me, like a light from heaven. And we get this awesome panel at the top where Azaceta shows us this vampire right. apocalypse or whatever. And in the meantime, while he's having this revelation, this fucking chuckle head is, oh, there's only one reason why you would be here. It's time. Right. Don't worry. I know what to do for the Reich. Heil Hitler, all this fucking, right. you know, and he presumes to know why this guy is there. And then before this revelation, that right. is why he was there. But now he's saying like, you know, for the first time I saw myself, my life for the truth of it. I was a criminal, a stain on the human race, a cancer. And he's telling him, no, this is madness. We have to stop. Right, you have yeah. to stop this. And the guy's like, oh, but didn't you receive the order? He's like, turn your key, sir. You know, yeah, he's very, yeah. 
And the guy was like, no, we're not doing this. And he's like, fuck you, you're a coward. He's like, no, I'm, you don't talk to me that way. The guy's like, you're a failure at being a Nazi. And the guy shoots him. And right. it's a very dramatic yeah. little scene here. He says, I had to kill him. He would have let them free or told somebody about them. Either way, the boy was a threat to all of us, to our children's children. And so he talks about how he wrote that note that Broom found and then he walled up the room from the outside using bricks from the wreckage of the asylum. And he, I like this little detail about how he made mortar in there. He mixed a dirt and rainwater and lime that he found in the shed. And his father was a bricklayer and right. he tries to launch into this whole thing about Nazis. And Broom just cuts him off like, well, let's, let's go back to the subject here. Right. Like, why? <laughs> Why didn't you just destroy them? You know? Right. And he says, I'm not an engineer. I have no idea about these things. I was frightened to even try. He asked the professor, did you destroy them? And he's like, well, 100 of them were missing. And then both Clark and the guy are like, what the fuck? Yeah. Right. Like both of them are like, he's like, what? He's like, that's what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, where they are. You would need to have a laboratory to keep them stable and lots of reliable electricity. And so they're trying to figure it out. And Manstein's able to figure out that they're at the general foundation for welfare and institutional care. And so Broom is like, okay, let's go. We've got a lead on the cryo tanks. And he's asking for more men. But Sergeant Mays says that they need time to do that. So Vavara says that she will provide the soldiers. But Mays isn't cool about that. He's like, I don't know what the hell you are. But this is a U.S. operation, and Broom's like, excellent, Vivara, get as many as you can. I want to be on the road in 10 minutes. Broom tells the sergeant, you've been invaluable to me, but this is bigger than our politics. And he's like, you and your boys don't have to come. You've been through a lot in the last few hours. I'll understand. And then the sergeant's like, all right, we're going. The job's not over till it's over. So it's kind of like... I almost think Broom uses reverse psychology on him or something like right. that. Where he's kind of like, yeah, you know, you've been, you all have been through a lot. Just take a rest. I don't know if he was actually using reverse psychology or not. If he was just like telling him like, hey, look, you really can sit this one out. Right, but right. as gung-ho soldiers as they are, I mean, they're not going to. They have their, they have their mission and they're going to fulfill it. Right. So we see all the Jeeps pull up to this general foundation for welfare and institutional care. And they go inside and they find this like big manhole cover thing they go down this hole and they're like you've got to be kidding me fascinating broom says and we see this like all this weird machinery and this there's like a robot giraffe franken giraffe yeah, yeah. Like, what was up with that it's so weird and there's just like all these different experiments this next page is great yeah so we cut back to manstein he's in his he's in the interrogation room and all of a sudden he hears an owl and then there's an owl sitting in the room, and it just hoots at him. And then the next panel, he's dead. Yeah. The letter was left behind. And we can see the letter. This is the letter that Broom found in there. I really like this. And so it says, For those that find this place, know that I did not fight in the interests of mankind's end. I pray forgiveness for all I have done. But I smile at this one act, that I hid this place. I hope you have the sense and ability to destroy what you have stumbled on here. Frederick Manstein, the bricklayer's son. And so we cut back to Broom and all the soldiers. They notice how the place is all wired up. And Broom explains that they have generators and air pumps keeping everything stable. 
this guy, Bird Eye, he starts getting really pissed at the professor. He's like, this is a goddamn gold mine and you've let all of them here. Wasn't that the whole reason, you know, why my friends got killed was so that way you could find this before the commies. And he's like, you think Stalin wants to make kissy kissy? So there's all this tension between this guy and then having the Russian soldiers there. He tells Professor that they're against us, and as far as I can tell, you're against us too. But Sergeant Mays, he stops it, and he does one of those drill sergeants thing where he just yells at the guy until he stops. Well, and he has a, you know, he has a point, like, as far as... I've never been in the Army, but I imagine that there's a definitely like a chain of command, right? Right. Like, it's... And it's he's kind of out of place right now. They're trying to work in league with these other soldiers, and this guy's kind of in danger of really fucking that up hardcore and he's like shut the fuck up you're in the goddamn army you're in the middle of a mission you need to act like it right very (laughs) this guy kind of immediately shuts the fuck up yeah and all of a sudden they hear this clacky clacky clickety clacky and they hear something coming closer (sighs) holy freaking jesus and we see it's Von Klempt, right? The head of Herman Von Klempt. He's got this like little spider body thing. Fucking and he's like, invaders. So they start shooting at him. So yeah, when we saw that giraffe, remember Von Klempt had all these experiments in Brazil? With he had the all bolts. these, yeah. yeah, he had all this like overgrown stuff and right. everything. So when I first started reading this, I wondered if we were going to run into Von Klempt yeah. and the other guys. And Sergeant Mays is like, what was that supposed to be? I don't know, Broom says. Don't let it get away. So they're chasing after him and, they, and all this stuff. And Vivara is like, this is most splendid thing ever. I really so love that. <laughs> Did you think I would be ill prepared for your coming invaders? It was only a matter of time. And Von Klemm shall always prevail over provincial minds. Now, my lovely Kliegoffen, let no one live to see the surface again. And so we see the gorilla robot monsters, the Kliegoffen. So Franken monkeys. Yeah. I guess they're not monkeys. I guess they're apes. So, Franken apes. Um, gorillas. Gorillas. What's up with him and the damn gorillas? You know, he's yeah. like every fucking story this guy has robot gorillas. Well, this is the first one, though. We're going to learn the first, these, first these are the two. first two. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And then I think um, later in Conquer Worm, it was number 10. Yeah. But then the one in um, that first story with Hellboy, um, where he's like on the table. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What number was that? I think that one was just named Brutus or something. Or... Uh, I'm sure. He, I'm sure he was one of them. But maybe, I mean, maybe yeah. He... Chapter five. Yeah. <laughs> we open up and fucking... it's a whole page of fighting these Franken gorillas, and then Professor Broom runs into this room that is very scary. There's a bunch of these vampire monsters in these tubes yeah so they reveal all this the vampires are like lining the walls of this giant dome or whatever spider nazi head in a jar yeah i just love all the craziness of this because it's kind of like from up until now we've seen a couple vampires but for the most part, it's been kind of like a war thing. You yeah, know it goes. What I mean? It with takes soldiers. a hard left. And then here we are with giant, you know, talking monkey robot monsters and this little spidery von Klempt. I just love all this, and they all react appropriately too. They're like, "What the fuck is that yeah. thing?" You know what I mean? There's like a um, talking chimp here. Broom goes in there after von Klempt, and he finds this chimp. He's at the control console, like in charge of everything, and he says, "Master, master, the invader, persistence, admirable." But in the end, you are only an instant crawling about inside my opera. And Broom's like, what the hell is going on here? He's like, you're in over your head, stranger. You and your popgun army. Above, you may have defeated Hitler. 
You may even be grinding Berlin to dust, but below in this oily, clanking hole, I am king. <laughs> I just really love it. I just live his maniacal a strange speech. monologue. And he calls this, this one's Dieter, the little chimp at the Dieter. at the thing. And he's like, recall Kriegoffen number two to home base so that he may clean our house of pests. And so he clicks this little button. And then you see on this second one, the little light dings on. And then he goes the other direction. I just really <laughs> like how all this is paced. It's really well done. One of these guys, I think this is, uh, I don't know if that's Sergeant Mays or Bird Eye. Maze has a mustache. Oh, okay. So then this supposed to be Bird Eye. He tells Vavara, you killed that creature in the barn, for God's sake. Why won't you help us now? Your own people are dying. And she goes, you said mean things about me. <laughs> <laughs> so then he gets beaten up by one of these gorillas. And the gorilla, like, growls in her face. And she just says, how wonderfully dramatic. One of the flamethrower guys comes over and sets it on fire. And so in the middle of all this, Sergeant Mays tells Clark, I'm going after the professor. Distract that thing as long as you can. And Clark's like, distract it. He starts running around. And so the in all this chaos, like the gorilla starts catching on fire. And Clark starts thinking about how Broom was talking about how they're in tanks. And if they don't get oxygen, they'll just simply die. So Clark gets an idea. He starts running off. So that way the robot gorilla will follow him. This guy looks like Tom Hardy. I was going to say, I really liked his, uh, he put two and two together. He like was there. He heard what he yeah. said. He remembered the crowd. He's like, distract the gorilla. Well, why don't we just go take him to the room? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, this is the guy that was there when Hellboy was found and all that stuff. So, you know, he maybe is thinking a little bit more about this. Yeah, you and know? he has yeah. a little more invested in it because yeah. he's not so out of the loop right he's been working with professor broom yeah. and howard and he yeah. might have a little bit of an affinity for professor broom yeah. and, for, and he doesn't refer to hellboy in a negative way right he's like yeah. well the, the little guy the little guy yeah i like that and so back up top now this krieg number two has made it to professor broom and now it's it's pinning him against the wall Von Klempt, he approaches him and he says, When Hitler's vampires failed to rise from the ashes of the Reich, I was not surprised. The whole party, the whole country, has always been cowardly and weak. But their weakness is my gain. And so we cut back and we see that's how he got all the vats, was those giant gorillas. They were able to take those hundred vampires out. It is I who will rattle civilization, not that backward Austrian buffoon of a dictator. We cut back to Clark. He's leading the gorilla down this hallway, and he leads it over to where all the machinery is. And it pulls this one Tearing piece up, up and yeah. starts getting electrocuted, right? So his plan worked really well. Von Klemp says, it's time now, Dieter. Show our mystery guest the full extent of my genius. Dieter's like changing the controls and all that, but then the power starts to go out because of what Clark did. So nothing's working now. In this weird pause moment, Professor Broom shoots this gorilla in the eye, so then he's able to get away from that one. That's it. My men have cut the power to the tanks, he says. It's over. And we cut over to Sergeant Mays. He's shooting at all the tanks and everything, and he's just saying, Goddamn frozen monsters, goddamn robot he's gorillas, goddamn head of the jar, goddamn crazy ghosts. I've had enough of this horror show, but Broom's like, Stop firing. You're going to set them off. So he's cracking the glass of where all these vampires are. And then this little guy, Dieter, he tackles the professor. And he says something like, I'm not going to stand by and let my master's plans get ruined. 
But then the glass breaks and all these vampire monsters get out and yeah. it's just a fuck. It's a scene, man. Yeah. It, yeah, but now Sergeant Mays is with the professor. They're both in the same place fighting this thing. Yeah, and just awesome work again by Azaceta. The way that he does these vampires coming out of this thing and all the fire. It's just really well done. And I really like the action too, the gorilla action. It's yeah. just the book just really takes a turn. It's just really fun from this point on. And then uh, all of a sudden, something even bigger seems to be happening because uh, Von Klimt is like going on about Hitler was dumb. He was doing all this stuff when really he should have been focusing on this other thing. And then this like rumbling is getting louder right. and louder. Vivara's so excited. She's like, fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, then Von Klimt is reveals like, I resurrected the rocket program. Right. And so there was like, you know, the Nazi space program or whatever. And uh, brings us back to the Hunt Castle thing. There's a little asterisk there. Right. From Hellboy Conqueror. And you turn the page and there's this fucking Nazi rocket taking off. Yeah, so the whole building inside where all those vampires were housed was the inside of a rocket. It just goes up into the air. And so they're gonna they're gonna bring the trouble to the real enemy, America. America. So they're unleash all the vampires there. And then just fuck. I mean, Professor Broom is like, we're on a rocket. Right. We're on a fucking rocket. And we see even more of the vampires have been released from their. Oh, you it's know, such a scary. They're climbing glass. up the thing. And-, and as we turn the page, this was the other part that I thought was really fucked up is the whole downstairs just get totally obliterated. So all those soldiers, Clark, everybody dies. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? mean? Yeah. yeah. But now it's just Professor Broom and Maze in the rocket. Yeah, so this was Von Klemp's plan to send this rocket of vampires over to the Americas. Because he wants to be the the guy. Everyone's scared of me. I'm yeah. the guy. They will all shudder forever in horror when they hear the name Von Klemp. Back on the rocket, Sergeant Mays, he finds a parachute and he gives it to the professor. And I like this, like... They're talking to each other, but they also can't hear each other because of all the noise. They're yelling yeah. real loud. And they're just yelling really loud, but there must be so much noise yeah. from the rocket and everything. And it's that it's that kind of scene where it's like, you take the parachute. No, there's got to be another shooter. Yeah, here. exactly. There's got to be another thing. He's like, no, I can't hear you. You have to get out of here. Right. I'm a brave soldier. Go ahead and take it. And it's a very dramatic. Yeah, Sergeant Mays, he he makes the ultimate sacrifice. He says, if this is what the future of war looks like, then humanity needs you a hell of a lot more than it needs me. And he just gives the professor the parachute and he just pushes him out of the rocket. Sorry, professor. It's like you've been saying all along. There's just no time. And I love this panel as the professor's falling down out of the rocket. That's so fucked up. You're thinking about, oh, my God. You know what I mean? He's just this guy holding onto a parachute. And as he falls out of the rocket, there's like an awesome hero moment with Sergeant Mays as he takes on all the vampires and this monster gorilla. And it actually pushes him outside of the rocket and the gorilla's just hanging on. And so Mays stabs it in the heart and then they all fall down through the engine of this rocket or whatever. So that kind of destroys it right there. Really fucked up, yeah. Yeah, and it all starts to blow up from above. And, you know, we see this little, I like this little um, blue, I don't know, what would you, what would you call this little effect it's right like an here? action. Yeah, thing. this yeah. little action effect where Broom pulls the parachute and all that. Really cool moment. Three days later, and we see Broom, he's recovering in France. The south of France. Yeah. It's a nice place to be. And the nurse comes over. She's like, you have an adorable guest. I'm sure you'll be very happy to see and Vivara comes in. She's like, hello, Papa. And the nurse is like, oh, what a beautiful girl in her darling dress and shiny shoes. With all the war rationing, we haven't seen such nice things in a long time. And Vivara says, 
Papa takes great care of me. <laughs> he must, she says. So cute. Vavar is there and she's like, it took a few days to find you, but I knew you were alive. I could feel it. And like you were saying earlier, you know, it's fucked up. All those people just died, you know, yeah. one after the other. And so he's talking about, yeah, well, a lot of people are dead. It's it's hard it's just sitting here and thinking about it. You know, I, I never expected it to be right. like that. I never noticed this, but Vavara's little doll is all charred too. Oh. So she was there, but she was oh, unharmed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, we saw like right, right when she said fantastic, the next panel is like her getting burnt, burnt up with the uh, soldier behind right, her. Right, right. So it is. Maybe it's like a projection. Yeah. yeah. She's not inhabiting the body of someone. She's. It's a projection that she chooses to. To show the world, yeah, yeah. Well, I did mention like uh, earlier that um, the demon stayed and showed had different faces. Yeah. Oh, ever changing, yeah. yeah. And Vavara explains about von Klempt. He was a specialist in bioengineering, and he worked for Himmler in '36 until an explosion damaged him. So I guess that's how his head got separated from oh, his okay. body. He continued research into mechanical prosthetics. Seems Head and Jar was very dangerous man. So question is, did you kill him, Professor? <laughs> And he's like, well, he was in the rocket when it exploded, but she's she just gives this look yeah. at him. She's doubtful, and we all know that von Klemp right. survived. Vavara, I know I've asked you this before, but in all those German files, have you ever come across anything called Project Ragnarok? And she's like, why would you ever want to know? And he's like, don't play games with me. I've earned this information. So she takes out this file. She says, not much, I'm afraid, but we have found the man responsible for summoning him. Grigory Yevamovich Rasputin, one of our own good Russian boys. And he's this, I love the little, like you always said, with the, when the word the word is really small. But oh, little, yeah. He's like, Rasputin. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, <laughs> fuck, what the fuck are we having to deal with now? Like, why? Right. You can just see his reaction, like, how is fucking Rasputin involved in this? It's just a very, right. it's funny to us because we know the thing. Anyway, yeah. I just, I like yeah. that. I like that little moment. You know, like I usually hate stuff like that. Sometimes stuff like that can come across where they it's a prequel, but they allude to stuff that you know is going to happen. I thought it like, was so well done, like, though. It, like, but, but I'm saying, uh, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, like some, in a, a, a Star Wars Episode Two, where Obi Wan leads to Anakin, you're going to be the death of me. Yeah. Cringe. Oh, you, oh, See, you think oh, it's so cringy? You, you think it, it's just ham-fisted? And, but, th- but this wasn't. No, that's what I'm saying. Is that yeah. normally it is very cheesy yeah. when they try and do stuff like that? But I like the way that they do it here. Everything that they kind of do here in terms of that. Very good storytelling. It, it, it goes yeah. very well. Absolutely. And it, it really, it's, I The don't reveal know. happens exactly yeah. when it should. Yes. And it's, you know, you feel comfortable with that part of the story. It's yeah. a very like, ooh, can't wait to see what happens next. Wait, I know, I know what happens next. Yeah. Of the thing. <laughs> oh, I see how they did that. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And Professor Room says, I know what you're thinking, but the child's not dangerous. And Vivara says, no, there's something else there. I see a spark of something in him, something good. Or perhaps it is the spark which will burn your house down, Vivara says. Mm. You are my favorite human being, Professor. Did you know? And he just goes, lucky me. (laughs) As he looks at this picture of Rasputin. We will meet again. Of this I promise, she says. And as she walks off, we read, This achievement in neutralizing the threat of Project Vampire Sturm as well as uncovering the extent of the Russian occult program, persuaded the 79th United States Congress to dedicate substantial and continuous funding to the BPRD. Yeah, so I really like this, and I love this panel of Hellboy eating his paschetti. Super cute. (laughs) My God, I love that. I I loved 
I loved all the young Hellboy pictures yeah. in this whole story. It was just like, man, I love that little guy. He's a cutie patootie. But I think it's just a testament to Mignola and Dysart, yeah. as well as Azaceta and Filardi, that Hellboy's not even in this. In fact, like none of the elements that we're yeah. familiar are in this. We're... We haven't really seen a lot of Broom, and it's mostly about him and Vivara and these soldiers, yeah. but it's so good. When you think oh, about yeah. it, it's so out of the element that we're yes. used to, but it doesn't feel like that at all. It doesn't. It, it, it feels like you're just right there in another awesome story. At, at this point in the reading history, you're in a nice little space where you, know, you can read something yeah. like this and really appreciate it for what it is and i just love this so and you're again, a believer you did yeah, a total 180 I, I really did and i i really uh came to love this this is one of my favorite story arcs in in all of the mignola verse that i've read and um yeah i was skeptical when it was coming out but that issue one just really got me i just really enjoyed it i remember reading it multiple times and um uh, while i was waiting for issue two so yeah bprd 1946 i really love this stuff well I wouldn't say that the element that there weren't the elements that we're used to because I mean we we have seen Broom, but you know I mean I guess only in like certain times. But right. I mean, we, we're familiar with he, who he is. We're familiar with the stuff that happened in the forties. We're aware that it happened, and this was just wonderful. It was like opening the curtain on something that you can kind of see and you finally get a full glimpse at it. And I was really excited. I, yeah. wanted, I didn't want to stop. Like when I told you I got done reading this, I, like, <laughs> I want to read the whole thing. Right yeah, now. it's really good. They do a, such a good job with Broom and with the storytelling. If you're looking at the omnibus version, if you go to 412 on the in the sketchbook section, these are notes by Scott Alley. He writes, Favara's design took a fair amount of back and forth. The flame Paul put on her forehead in his initial attempt fits well in the Mignola book, but was counter to the innocent image the character needed. Mike provided the photograph that unlocked her final design. And so we see this photograph. So I guess Mignola, I wonder where he got this photograph from. But he provided this to them, and that helped inform their design of Vivara. It's really interesting to look at this old picture of this little girl. Yeah. And yeah, the sketches of Vivara are super good. Yeah, and she's in the little white dress and everything. If you go over to 414, see, as I said, as original designs were more in line with the Mongolian tomb that they were found mm-hmm. in. But then he was told to kind of reference the Right Hand of Doom sketchbook, which I talked about earlier, and that's where he got these designs from. Super good. Yeah, so they look really awesome. And um, yeah, awesome book. I'm really excited to get to um, next week. Yeah, this one, I just really enjoyed it. I really love Vivara, and just like she says at the end of that story, you know, maybe we'll see her again hey. in some future stories. Maybe. With a great character, so. Oh, she didn't say maybe. She said she would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She said she <laughs> promises, so Good we'll stuff. see. Great episode. I'm excited to see all the feedback, and now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, guys. Share your thoughts on BPRD 1946 and the other two stories we read. Send us your feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find the Discord link on our Facebook page. And be sure to check out our friends at Mignolaverse.com and all the wonderful things they're doing. And once again, we want to thank Paul from Gardahan for that lovely theme. We love it all the time. Super uh, good. Excellent. Yeah. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we'll be talking about the BPRD 1947. So, pull out your pack issues, your trades, 
Go check it out the, from the library. Use the Hoopla app. Buy them off Comixology. Just join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks a lot, everybody. I'm John Salinas. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, holy freaking Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>